Before we start this bonus episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that if you're listening with kids, you might want to listen to this one on your own first. There's no swearing or anything like that, but we're going to be learning more about Jack the Ripper through some articles and documents that describe the crime scenes in some pretty horrific detail. So consider this your parental warning. Hey there. This week on the podcast, we learned about the 2001 movie, From Hell. That movie was picked by Nikki. Now, she's a producer for Based on a True Story, which means she's helping to support the show, but that's not all. As a producer, she got to pick a movie to cover and have it jump to the front of the line of requested episodes, hence why we're covering From Hell this week, along with early access to episodes and access to bonus episodes, like this one here. Now, I haven't done this before on the public feed, but I thought I'd go ahead and share this bonus episode with you so you get a peek into what producers of the show get access to. So, as I mentioned, this week we dove into some true crime, learning about the movie From Hell and the Jack the Ripper murders that gripped Whitechapel in the late 19th century. Now, if you listen to that episode, and I highly recommend listening to that episode first, Even though we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, that doesn't mean there's not a ton of evidence and reports, so it stands to reason that I came across a lot of great bonus content in the form of newspaper articles from the times of the murders, uh, letters from Jack the Ripper, and some notes from the doctor on the crime scene, Dr. Bond. Now, the first murder tied to Jack the Ripper was Emma Smith on Tuesday, April 3rd, 1888. Unfortunately, I just couldn't find any sort of media hype surrounding her death, Maybe that's because she was the first. There was no serial killer yet, or that term wasn't used back then, but you know what I mean. It was just another death in a poor part of town. Or maybe that's because Emma wasn't actually murdered in a vicious way that seems to spark headlines. If you recall from the From Hell episode, she was assaulted and raped, but survived the attack, claiming it was multiple people who did it. She then died the next day as a result of the attack. Even though there's nothing for Emma specifically, she's mentioned throughout some of the other articles. So let's get started with the second victim associated with Jack the Ripper. On Tuesday, August 7th, 1888, Martha Tabram's body was found stabbed 39 times. Later in the week, on Saturday, August 11th, this article was published in London's newspaper, The Guardian. The Murder in Whitechapel Mr. Collier, the deputy coroner for Southeast Middlesex, opened on Thursday an inquiry at Whitechapel on the body of Martha Turner, age 35, a single woman living at Four Star Place, Commercial Road, who was found lying on the landing of George Yard Buildings on Tuesday morning last, with over 20 stabs about her person. Previous to calling the first witness, the coroner said that the body had been identified that morning, but he had just been informed that two other persons had also identified it as quite a different person. And under those circumstances, he thought the question of identity had better be left to the last. Elizabeth Mahoney of 47 George Yard Buildings, Whitechapel, the wife of a carman, stated that on the night of bank holiday, she was out with some friends. She returned shortly before two in the morning with her husband and afterwards left the house to try and get some supper at the Chandler's shop. 
The stairs were then perfectly clear of any obstacle and were the same on her return. She and her husband heard no noise during the night, but at 10 o'clock she was told that a murder had been committed in the building. There was no light on the staircase. The spot where the body was found had been pointed out to her. She was sure it was not there at 2 o'clock when she went in, as it was in the wide part of the stairs and quite in the dark. A.G. Crow, a cab driver of 35 George Yard Buildings, deposed that on Tuesday morning he returned home from work at half past three. On his way up to the stairs, he saw somebody lying on the first landing. It was not an unusual thing to see, so he passed on and went to bed. He did not know whether the person was dead or alive as he passed. J. Reeves, 37, George Yard Buildings, a waterside laborer, deposed that on Tuesday morning he left home at 5 o'clock to go in search at the park. On the first floor landing, he saw a female lying in a pool of blood. She lay on her back and seemed dead. He at once gave notice to the police. The woman was a stranger to the witness. Her clothes were all disheveled, as if she had had a struggle with someone. The witness did not notice any instrument lying around. Police Constable Hart deposed to being called by the witness to view the body of the deceased. She was lying on her back, and before she was moved, a doctor was called for, and on arrival pronounced her extinct. The woman's hands were clenched, but did not contain anything. Her clothes were disarranged. Dr. T.R. Colsein, 40 Brick Lane, stated that he was called to the deceased and found her dead. He examined the body and found 33 puncture wounds. There were no less than 9 in the throat and 17 in the breast. She appeared to have been dead 3 hours. The body was well nourished. He had since made a post-mortem examination and found the left lung penetrated in five places and the right lung in two places. The heart had been penetrated, but only in one place. Otherwise, it was quite healthy. The liver was healthy, but penetrated in five places. And the spleen was penetrated in two places. The stomach was penetrated in six places. In the witness's opinion, the wounds were not induced with the same instrument, there being a deep wound in the breast from some long instrument, while most of the others were done, apparently, with a penknife. The large wound could have been caused by a sword, bayonet, or dagger. It was impossible for the whole of the wounds to be self-inflicted. Death was due to loss of blood consequent on the injuries. At the conclusion of this witness's evidence, the inquiry was adjourned. After Martha's murder came the five women who historians and experts have almost always linked to Jack the Ripper. The first of those was Mary Ann Nichols, who commonly went by the nickname Polly. She was murdered on Friday, August 31, 1888. That very weekend, this article made the Sunday paper from London's The Observer on September 2nd. The Shocking Murder in Whitechapel Yesterday afternoon, William Nichols, husband of the woman who was found lying dead and fearfully mutilated in Bucks Row, Baker's Row, Whitechapel, early on Friday morning, was conducted from his residence at 37. Coburg Road, Old Kent Road, 
to the mortuary where he recognized the body of the murdered woman as being that of his wife. The son, who resides with his grandfather at 15 Madewell Street, Albany Street, Camberwell, also identified the remains of his mother. This removed all further doubt as to the deceased being Mary Ann Nichols. It has been ascertained that the unfortunate woman was one of those who last year were in the habit of sleeping in Trafalgar Square, and when a clearance of the nightly visitors was made, it being found that she was destitute and had no means of substance, she was admitted as an inmate to the Lambeth workhouse. After her discharge from the workhouse and subsequent disappearance from service at Wadsworth, little was known of her whereabouts by her relations. Lately, it seemed that she had been lodging in a common lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfield, leading an immoral life and known by her female acquaintances as Polly. It was first supposed that the crime had been committed by a maniac, but this opinion has been abandoned. Likewise, the belief that the woman was lured into a house in the vicinity and murdered, the body being afterwards removed. The conclusion now arrived at is that the woman met with her dreadful fate where her body was found. What were at first supposed to have been pools of blood for some distance upon the pavement cannot be relied upon as such, owing to the darkness of the stains. That the lower portions of her clothes were not stained in blood is due to the fact that the dreadful wounds in the abdomen believed to have been first inflicted had bled inwardly. Their nature, too, was such to have prevented a removal of the body in the state in which it was found. Although a small pool of blood was found near the head, still a greater part from the throat had trickled down the neck and saturated her undergarments. Another theory is that from the moment the woman was last seen till the discovery of her body by the police constable, sufficient time would not have elapsed to have admitted of the murder taking place in a house and the dragging of the body to a distance. The police have obtained no definite clue as to the author of the ghastly crime, but are using every available means in their power to obtain a trace of the murderer and bring the criminal to justice. Inspector Helson, as well as Inspector Aberline, Sergeant Godley, and Sergeant Eowright, experts from the Criminal Investigation Department, have the case in hand, and are of the opinion that there is some connection between this and the other two murders which have taken place in the same locality. A house-to-house -house investigation and inquiry has been made in all the streets adjoining Ducks Row, but with no tangible result. The assumption is that the brutal crime was committed by one of a high-rip gang who are known in the neighborhood to be in the habit of blackmailing unfortunate women and treating them in a brutal manner. The names of some of this band of roughs are known to the detective officers who, it is stated, are empowered by the chief commissioner to give money payments for confidential information which may lead to the discovery of the actual perpetrator of the murder. Considerable consternation and horror prevails in the neighborhood of the three successive murders and there is a general demand for further police protection and supervision. Up till a late hour last night, no arrest had been made. Yesterday, Mr. Wynne E. Baxter, the coroner of Southeast Middlesex, opened an inquiry at the Working Lads Institute, Whitechapel Road, into the circumstances attending 
the death of a woman supposed to be Mary Ann Nichols, who was discovered lying dead on the pavement in Bucks Row, Baker's Row, Whitechapel, early yesterday morning. Deceased, who lay in a pool of blood, had been the victim of a most brutal outrage, the perpetrators of which have not yet been discovered. Inspector Helston, who has the case in hand, attended with other officers on behalf of the Criminal Investigation Department. Edward Walker was the first witness called. He said, I live at 15 Madewell Street, Albany Road, Camberwell, and have no occupation. I was a smith when I was at work, but I am not now. I have seen the body in the mortuary, and to the best of my belief, it is my daughter, but I have not seen her for three years. I recognize her by her general appearance and by a little mark she had on her forehead when a child. She also had either one or two teeth out, the same as the woman I have just seen. My daughter's name was Mary Ann Nichols, and she had been married 22 years. Her husband's name was William Nichols, and he is alive. He is a machinist. They have been living apart for some length of time, about seven or eight years. I last heard of her before Easter. She was 42 years of age. The coroner. How did you see her? The witness. She wrote to me. The coroner. Is this letter in her handwriting? Witness. Yes, that is her handwriting. The letter, which was dated April 17, 1888, was read by the coroner and referred to a place which the deceased had gone to at Wadsworth. The coroner. When did you last see her alive? Witness. Two years ago, last June. The coroner. Was she then in a good situation? Witness. I don't know. I was not on speaking terms with her. She had been living with me three or four years previously, but thought she could do better herself, so I let her go. The coroner. What did she do after she left you? Witness. I don't know. The coroner. This letter seems to suggest that she was in a decent situation. Witness. She had just gone there. The coroner. Was she a sober woman? Witness. Well, at times she drank, and that was why we did not agree. The coroner. Was she fast? The witness. No, I have never heard anything of that sort. She used to go with some young women and men that she knew, but I never heard of anything improper. The coroner. Have you any idea what she has been doing lately? The witness. I have not the slightest idea. The coroner. She must have drunk heavily for you to have turned her out of doors. Witness. I never turned her out. She had no need to be like this while I had a home for her. The coroner. How is it that she and her husband were not living together? Witness. When she was confined, her husband took on with the young woman who came to nurse her, and they parted, he living with the nurse by whom he has another family. The coroner. Have you any reasonable doubt that this is your daughter? Witness. No, I have not. I know nothing about her acquaintances of what she had been doing for a living. I had no idea she was over here in this part of town. She has had five children, the eldest being 21 years old and the youngest eight or nine years. One of them lives with me and the other four are with their father. The coroner. Has she ever lived with anybody since she left her husband? Witness. I believe she was once stopping with a man in York Street, Walworth. His name was Drew, and I believe he was a smith by trade. 
He's living there now, I believe. The parish of Lambeth summoned her husband for the keep of her children, but the summons was dismissed as it was proved that she was then living with another man. I don't know who that man was. The coroner. Was she ever in the workhouse? Witness. Yes, sir, Lambeth Workhouse in April last, and went from there to a situation at Wadsworth. By the jury. The husband resides at Coburg Road, Old Kent Road. I don't know if he knows of her death. Coroner. Is there anything you know of likely to throw any light upon this affair? Witness. No, I don't think she had any enemies. She was too good for that. John Neal, Police Constable 97J, said, Yesterday morning I was proceeding down Bucks Row, Whitechapel, going towards Brady Street. There was not a soul about. I had been round there half an hour previously, and I saw no one then. I was on the right-hand side of the street when I noticed a figure lying in the street. It's very dark at the time, though there was a street lamp shining at the end of the row. I went across and found deceased lying outside a gateway, her head toward the east. The gateway was closed. It was about nine or ten feet high and led to some stables. There were houses from the gateway eastward, and the school board school occupies the westward. On the opposite side of the road is Essex Wharf. Deceased was lying long ways along the street, her left hand touching the gate. I examined the body by the aid of my lamp and noticed blood oozing from a wound in the throat. She was lying on her back with her clothes disarranged. I felt her arm, which was quite warm, from the joints upward. Her eyes were wide open. Her bonnet was off and lying at her side close to her left hand. I heard a constable passing Brady Street, so I called to him. I did not whistle. I said to him, run at once for Dr. Lowellin. And seeing another constable in Baker's Row, I sent him for the ambulance. The doctor arrived in a very short time. I had, in the meantime, rung the bell at Essex Wharf and asked if any disturbance had been heard. The reply was no. Sergeant Kirby came after and he knocked. The doctor looked at the woman and said, Move the woman to the mortuary. She is dead, and I will make a further examination of her there. We then placed her on the ambulance and moved her there. Inspector Spratley came to the mortuary, and while taking a description of the deceased, turned up her clothes and found that she was disemboweled. This had not been noticed by any of them before. On the body was found a piece of a comb and a bit of looking glass. No money was found, but an unmarked white handkerchief was found in her pocket. The coroner. Did you notice any blood where she was found? Witness. There was a pool of blood just where her neck was lying. The blood was then running from the wound in her neck. The coroner. Did you hear any noise that night? Witness. No, I heard nothing. The farthest I had been that night was just through the Whitechapel Road and up Baker's Road. I was never far away from the spot. The coroner. Whitechapel Road is busy in the early morning, I believe. Could anybody have escaped that way? Witness. Oh, yes, sir. I saw a number of women in the main road going home. At that time, anyone could have gotten away. The coroner. Someone searched the ground, I believe? Witness. Yes, I examined it while the doctor was being sent for. Inspector Spratley. I examined the road, sir, in daylight. A juryman, to the witness. 
Did you see a trap in the road at all? Witness. No. A juryman. Knowing that the body was warm, did it not strike you that it might have been just laid there and that the woman was killed elsewhere? Witness. I examined the road, but did not see the mark of wheels. The first to arrive on the scene after I had discovered the body were two men who work at the slaughterhouse opposite. They said they knew nothing of the affair and that they had not heard any screams. I had previously seen the men at work. That would be about a quarter past three or half an hour before the body was found. Henry Lowenland, surgeon, said, On Friday morning I was called to Buck's Row at about four o'clock. The constable told me what I was wanted for. On reaching Buck's Row, I found the deceased woman lying flat on her back in the pathway, her legs extended. I found she was dead and that she had severe injuries to her throat. Her hands and wrists were cold, but the body and lower extremities were warm. I examined her chest and felt the heart. It was dark at the time. I believe she had not been dead for more than half an hour. I am quite certain that the injuries to her neck were not self-inflicted. There was very little blood round the neck. There were no signs of any struggle or of blood, as if the body had been dragged. I told the police to take her to the mortuary, and I would make another examination. About an hour later, I was sent for by the inspector to see the injuries he had discovered on the body. I went and saw that the abdomen was cut very extensively. I have this morning made a post-mortem examination of the body. I found it to be that of a female, about 40 or 45 years. Five of the teeth are missing, and there's a slight incursion of the tongue. On the right side of the face, there is a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw. It might have been caused by a blow with a fist or pressure by the thumb. On the left side of the face, there was a circular bruise, which also might have been done by the pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about an inch below the jaw, there was an incision about four inches long and running from a point immediately below the ear. An inch below on the same side and commencing about an inch in front of it was a circular incision terminating at a point about three inches below the right jaw. This incision completely severs all the tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision is about eight inches long. These cuts must have been caused with a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence. No blood at all was found on the breast, either of the body or clothes. There were no injuries about the body till just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running in a jagged manner. It was a very deep wound and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. On the right side, there were also three or four similar cuts running downwards. All of these had been caused by a knife, which had been used violently and had been used downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All the injuries had been done by the same instrument. The inquiry was adjourned till tomorrow. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. 
Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. It's interesting to point out that the article mentions Polly Nichols was married to a man named William and even had children. The movie doesn't really seem to mention this at all. Oh, and yes, the newspaper actually spells Inspector Helston, H-E-L-S-T-O-N, and Inspector Helson, H-E-L-S-O-N, differently, if you caught that pronunciation difference. No need to send an email on that one. This next article comes just two days after the murder of Annie Chapman when her body was found on Saturday, September 8th. This was published in London's paper, The Times, two days later, on the 10th. Another murder at the East End. Whitechapel and the whole of the East of London have again been thrown into a state of intense excitement by the discovery early on Saturday morning of the body of a woman who had been murdered in a similar way to Marianne Nichols at Bucks Row on Friday week. In fact, the similarity in these two cases is startling, as the victim of the outrage had her head almost severed from her body and was completely disemboweled. This latest crime, however, even surpasses the others in ferocity. The scene of the murder, which makes the fourth in the same neighborhood in the past few weeks, is at the back of the house, 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. This street runs from Commercial Street to Baker's Row, the end of which is close to Bucks Row. The house, which is rented by Mrs. Amelia Richardson, is let out to various lodgers, all of the poorer class. In consequence, the front door is open both day and night, so that no difficulty would be experienced by anyone in gaining admission to the back portion of the premises. Shortly before 6 o'clock on Saturday morning, John Davis, who lives with his wife at the top portion of number 29 and is a porter engaged in Spitalfield markets, went down to the backyard where a horrible sight presented itself to him. Lying close up against the wall, with her head touching the other side of the wall, was the body of a woman. Davis, who could see that her throat was severed in a terrible manner and that she had other wounds of a nature too shocking to be described, the deceased was lying flat on her back with her clothes disarranged. Without nearer approaching the body but telling his wife what he had seen, Davis ran to the Commercial Street Police Station, which is only a short distance away, and gave information to Inspector Chandler, H Division, who was in charge of the station at that time. That officer, having dispatched a constable for Dr. Baxter Phillips, Spittle Square, 
the divisional surgeon repaired to the house, accompanied by several other policemen. The body was still in the same position, and there were large clots of blood all around it. It is evident that the murderer thought that he had completely cut the head off, as a handkerchief was found wrapped around the neck as though to hold it together. There were spots and stains of blood on the wall. One or more rings seemed to have been torn from the middle finger of the left hand. After being inspected by Dr. Baxter Phillips and his assistant, the remains were removed on an ambulance to the mortuary on Old Montauk Street. By this time, the news had quickly spread that another diabolical murder had been committed, and when the police came out of the house with a body, a large crowd consisting of some hundreds of persons had assembled. The excitement became very great, and loud were the expressions of terror heard on all sides. At the mortuary, the doctors made a more minute examination of the body, after which the clothes were taken off. The deceased was laid in the same shell in which Mary Ann Nichols was placed. Detective Sergeant Thick, Sergeant Leach, and other detective officers were soon on the spot while a telegram was sent to Inspector Aberline at Scotland Yard apprising him of what had happened. It will be recollected that this officer assisted in the inquiry concerning the murder in Bucks Row. A minute search being made of the yard, a portion of an envelope stained with blood was found. It had the crest of the Sussex Regiment on it and the date, London, August 20th. But the address portion, with the exception of one letter, M, was torn off. In addition, two pills were also picked up. Inquiries were quickly set afoot with a view to having the woman identified and persons of both sexes were taken out of the neighboring common lodging houses, which abound in this district, to the mortuary. One of these, Timothy Donovan, the deputy of a common lodging house, 35 Dorset Street, recognized the body as that of a woman he knew by the name of Annie Siffy. He had seen her in the kitchen of the lodging house as late as half past one or two o'clock that morning. He knew her as an unfortunate and that she generally frequented Stratford for a living. He asked her for her lodging money when she said, I have not got it. I am weak and ill and have been in the infirmary. Donovan told her she knew the rules and she went out to get some money. Although there are various statements that she was seen with a man in a public house at 5 o'clock, the police have no authentic information respecting that point. Donovan did not turn the woman out of the lodging house. He simply did his duty by telling her that she knew the rules of the establishment, that the price of the lodging had to be paid beforehand. At that time, she was wearing three brass rings. Other inquiries soon established that the woman's real name was Annie Chapman and that she was known by the nickname of Dark Annie. She was a widow of a pensioner and formerly lived at Windsor. Some few years since she separated from her husband, who made her a weekly allowance of ten shillings. At his death, she had to do the best she could for a living. There were two children, a boy and a girl, of the marriage. The former, who is deformed, is at the present time an inmate of the cripple's home, while the girl is away in some institution in France. For some months past, the deceased had been living in common lodging houses in Spitalfields, and when in good health, used to frequent the streets of Stratford for a living. It is also known that formerly she lived with a sieve maker in 
the neighborhood, and on account of that, she got the nickname of Siffy. Only on Monday last, she had a quarrel with another woman of her acquaintance, and during a fight and struggle, got severely mauled and kicked. On Saturday afternoon, Dr. Baxter Phillips, assisted by his assistant, made a most exhaustive post-mortem examination, lasting upward of two hours. Although, of course, the exact details had not been made public, it is known that Dr. Phillips was unable to find any trace of alcohol in the stomach of the deceased, thus disproving many reports that when the woman was lasting alive, she was the worse for drink. The deceased was a little over five feet in height and of fair complexion with blue eyes and dark brown wavy hair. A singular coincidence about the corpse was that there were two front teeth missing, as in the case of Marianne Nichols. On the right side of the head was a large bruise, showing that the deceased woman must have been dealt a heavy blow at that spot. There were also other bruises about the face, and finger marks were discernible. The latter indicate that the murderer must have first grasped his victim by the throat, probably in order to prevent her crying out. The police believed that the murder has been committed by the same person who perpetrated the three previous ones in the district, and that only one person is concerned in it. This person, whoever he might be, is doubtless laboring under some terrible form of insanity, as each of the crimes has been of a most fiendish character, and it is feared that unless he can speedily be captured, more outrages of a similar class will be committed. During the whole of Saturday and yesterday, a large crowd congregated in front of the house in Hanbury Street, and the neighbors on either side did much business by making a small charge to persons who were willing to pay it to view from windows the yard in which the murder was committed. On Saturday, a rumor got about that the murderer had been caught, but the only ground for such a statement was that a blind man had been arrested in Spitalfields Market on a warrant to answer a charge of stabbing. Later in the day, this man was charged at the Worship Street Police Court and sentenced to three months' hard labor. Great complaints are made concerning the inadequate police protection at the East End, and this want is even admitted by the local police authorities themselves, but they are unable to alter the existing state of affairs. Outrages and acts of lawlessness daily occur in broad daylight in the principal thoroughfares of the East End, and the offenders are seldom brought to justice owing to the inability of the police to properly cover the whole of the ground within their jurisdiction. During Saturday and yesterday, several persons were detained at the various police stations in the district, but were liberated after proper inquiries had been made. And up to the present time, the police have no clue to the murderer and lament that they have no good ground to work upon. An inquest on the body of the murdered woman will be open today. Another account. At five minutes to six o'clock on Saturday morning, a man named John Davis, living at 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields, discovered that a woman had been murdered in the yard at the rear of that house. It was abundantly clear that she was another victim of the miscreant who had murdered Marianne Nichols in Bucks Row, Whitechapel, only a week previously. The same horrible ferocity had been exhibited in the commission of the crime, and the victim was again one of the class called unfortunates and so poor that robbery could scarcely be suggested as a motive for the murder. The house, 29 Hanbury Street, which is not half a mile from Bucks Row, is tenanted by a man named Clark, 
a packing case maker and is let out by rooms to several poor people. The front parlor is in the occupation of a Mrs. Hardman, who uses it as a shop for the sale of cat's meat. She and her son also sleep in the room. The back parlor is a sort of sitting room for the landlady and her family, and looks out upon a yard, at the further side of which stands a shed where the packing casework is done. The passage of the house leads directly to the yard, passing the door of the front parlor. The yard is about four feet below the level of the passage and is reached by two stone steps. The position of the steps creates a recess on their left, the fence between the yard and the next house being about three feet from the steps. In this recess, John Davis, as he crossed the yard about five minutes to six o'clock, saw the body of a woman, with the lower part of her body horribly mutilated, and her throat so terribly gashed that the head was almost severed from the trunk. Davis seems to have at once run out and called in Police Constable Pinnock, 238H, and that constable sent information to the station in Commercial Street. Inspector Chandler, on duty, with others, hurried to the place, and before the body was removed from its position, the divisional surgeon, Mr. George Baxter Phillips of Spittle Square, was called to examine it. The fiendish character of the mutilation then became manifest. There was no doubt, he said, that the throat was first cut and then the stomach subsequently mutilated. The body was removed as soon as possible to the mortuary of the parishes of Whitechapel and Spitalfields in Old Montauk Street and placed in a shell the same in which a week before the hacked body of the previous victim had been placed. The police description of the body was quickly made out and before 10 o'clock it was identified as that of Annie Chapman, alias Sivy, a name by which she had become known in consequence of living with a sieve maker. The police satisfied themselves that Chapman was the correct name of the deceased and that she was the widow of a man who had been a soldier and from whom, until about 12 months ago when he died, she had been receiving 10 shillings a week. She was one of the same class as Marianne Nichols, her usual place of abode also being the common lodging houses of Spitalfields and Whitechapel. She is described as a stout, well-proportioned woman of about five feet in height, as quiet as one who had, quote, seen better days, end quote. Detective Inspector Aberline of the Scotland Yard, who had been detailed to make special inquiries as to the murder of Marianne Nichols, at once took up the inquiries with regard to the new crime, the two being obviously work of the same hands. He held a consultation with Detective Inspector Helson, J Division, in whose district the murder in Bucks Row was committed, and with Acting Superintendent West in charge of the H Division. The result of that consultation was an agreement in the belief that the crimes were the work of one man only, and that notwithstanding many misleading statements and rumors, the majority of which, in the excitement of the time, had been printed as facts, the murders were committed where the bodies had been found, and that no gang were the perpetrators. It having been stated that the woman must have been murdered elsewhere and her body deposited in the yard, the house door giving access to the passage and the yard never being locked, the most careful examination was made of the flooring of the passage and the walls, but not a trace of blood was found to support such a theory. 
It is, moreover, considered impossible that a body could have been carried in, supposing no blood had dropped, without arousing from their sleep Mrs. Hardiman and her son, past whose bedroom door the murderer had to go. There is no doubt that the deceased was acquainted with the fact that the house door was always open or ajar, and that she and her murderer stealthily passed into the yard. Although, as in the case of Mary Ann Nichols, a very small quantity of blood was found on the ground, leading to the supposition that the murder was committed elsewhere, its absence is accounted for by the quantity the clothes would absorb. The deceased had no time to raise a cry, and the tenants of the house agree that nothing was heard to create alarm. The back room of the first floor, which has an uninterrupted view of all the yard, is a bedroom and was tenanted by a man named Alfred Walker and his father, neither of whom had, quote, heard a sound, end quote. John Richardson, son of a woman living in the house, stated that he entered the place when he was on his way to work at Lidenhall Market at about 4.50 and was certain no one was in the yard. The police, however, have been unable to discover any person who saw the deceased alive after 2 a.m., about which time she left the lodging house, 35 Dorset Street, because she had not four sixpence to pay for her bed. No corroboration of the reported statement that she was served in a public house at Spitalfields Market on its opening at 5 a.m. could be gained, nor of the sensational report that the murderer left a message on the wall in the yard, which was made out to read, quote, five, fifteen more, and then... I give myself up, end quote. Nevertheless, the police express a strong opinion that more murders of the kind will be committed before the miscreant is apprehended. Soon after the murder was discovered, a woman of the same class reported to the police that a man had accosted her in the streets of Spitalfields at an early hour that morning, but that she tried to avoid him. Thereupon, he began to knock her about. She screamed and ran off. He gave her two brass medals for half-sovereigns. She was asked to describe the man, but her description of him was not considered clear. Still, the police determined to follow up on the matter, more particularly because the woman states that the man seemed ready to kill her. The woman's description did not answer the description of a man for whom they had been searching in connection with the murder of Marianne Nichols, a man known as Leather Apron and they inclined to the opinion that, after the hue and cry raised about him during the past few days, he would not have ventured into the neighborhood of Spitalfields, where he is so well known. It seems certain that the deceased was robbed of three rings she wore on her left hand, which the murderer mistook for gold, though it is said that to a woman in the lodging house she admitted they were only brass. A young woman named Lyons stated that at three o'clock yesterday afternoon she met a strange man in flower in Dean Street. He asked her to come to the Queen's Head public house at half-past six and drink with him. Having obtained from her a promise that she would do so, he disappeared and was at the house named at the appointed time. While they were conversing, Lyons noticed a large knife in the man's right-hand trouser pocket and called another woman's attention to the fact. A moment later, Lyons was startled by a remark which the stranger addressed to her. You are about the same style of woman as the one that's murdered, he said. What do you know about her? asked the woman, to which the man replied, You are beginning to smell a rat. Foxes hunt geese, but they don't always find them. Having uttered these words, the man hurriedly left. 
Lyons followed until near Spitalfield's church when, turning round at this spot and noticing that the woman was behind him, the stranger ran at a swifter pace into Church Street and was at once lost to view. One noteworthy fact in this story is that the description of the man's appearance is, in all material points, identical with the published description of the unknown and up-to-present untracked leather apron. Over 200 common lodging houses have been visited by the police in the hope of finding some trace of the mysterious and much-talked-of person, but he has succeeded in evading arrest. On Saturday evening, a somewhat suspicious incident occurred at Deptford. About 7 o'clock, a man in a hurried manner entered the shop of a news agent in Grove Street near the entrance to the foreign cattle market and in an excited tone asked for a copy of the special star containing an account of the Whitechapel murder. The news agent replied that he had not one left. The man then asked for a special evening news and received the same reply. Then, said the man, let me have a special anything. The news agent was at the time reading the special standard newspaper and told him that he could have that if he liked. The man snatched the open paper from his hand and threw a penny down on the counter, rushed out of the shop, and by the light of gas in the shop window, appeared to eagerly and excitedly read the account of the tragedy. Indeed, this manner and appearance were so remarkable that the news agent suspected that he might have in some way been connected with the murder and, leaving the shop, told a boy who was passing to hurry away for a policeman and bring one back to the shop immediately. The boy started off, and the newsagent returned to his shop, and on doing so was observed by the man, who appeared to become alarmed at the circumstance, for he crushed up the newspaper in his hand, started across the road, ran down Emily Place, and disappeared. The newsagent is of the opinion that he probably ran that way toward a car on the Deptford and Southwark tramway, which runs to Tooley Street, and would take him out of the neighborhood in a few minutes. The man wore an old felt hat pulled well forward over his eyes and his coat collar being up. The impression of the newsagent is that he was endeavoring to conceal his features. He was of stout build, full-chested, rather ruddy complexion, slight mustache, a beard, scrubby or of several days' growth, and looked, to use the newsagent's words, as if a little soap would have done him good. He was wearing an old brown overcoat, well-worn, and greasy at the pockets. He stood about two minutes outside the shop reading the paper and was watched by the news agent through the window. A constable afterwards came to the shop and took down in writing the statement of the news agent. A man was arrested at Deptford yesterday afternoon on suspicion of being connected with the East End tragedy, but there is reason to believe that he will be able to establish his innocence and will soon be released. If you recall in the movie when Dark Annie Chapman was found dead, there were onlookers watching. That's something the movie got right, as that article indicated. Some people even went so far as to charge a fee to look. You'll also notice the mention of someone named Leather Apron. That's what people called the suspect at the time on the account of there not really being anything else to call him. They didn't know the identity. And many assumed that the killer must have been a butcher because of the viciousness of the attack. So Leather Apron kind of became the name. And then things only escalated after Annie Chapman's murder. That same month, on September 30th, Jack the Ripper took two lives on the same day. Three days before that happened, though, the name Leather Apron was replaced when police received this letter.
Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ear off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away, if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. It's worth pointing out that this is the first time the killer referred to himself, or herself, as Jack the Ripper. Initially, cops thought it was a hoax. Even now, some think it was a hoax. But then, cops changed their tune when there was a double murder just three days after they got that letter. The first was Elizabeth Stride, then Catherine Eddowes. Now, the day after they were murdered, the police received this letter. I was not cutting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about the saucy Jackie's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Ha! Not the time to get ears for police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. This article is from a couple days after the bodies of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes were found. It was published by The Guardian on Tuesday, October 2nd. The Whitechapel Murders, Clues and Arrests 1,200-pound reward offered The public indignation at the inability of the police by their existing methods to bring to justice the murderers of the six unfortunate women who have been so foully done to death in the East End of London during the past two months found a practical shape yesterday. The barrier of reticence which has been set up on all occasions when the representatives of the newspaper press have been brought into contact with the police authorities for the purposes of obtaining information for the use of the public has been suddenly withdrawn. And instead of the customary stereotyped negatives and disclaimers of the officials, there has ensued a marked disposition to afford all necessary facilities for the publication of details and increased courtesy towards the members of press concerned. Another direction in which the officials have been aroused to the sense of their public responsibility has been by the spontaneous offers of substantial rewards by public bodies and private individuals toward the detection of the criminal or criminals guilty of these desperate crimes. Following upon the refusal of the Home Secretary to place government funds at the disposal of the police for this purpose, there was much dissatisfaction expressed and the feeling which this refusal provoked, though not finding public expression at the time, has been stimulated by the more recent crimes to outward manifestation. A meeting of the Vigilance Committee, which has 
for some time been formed in Whitechapel, was held today at Mile End, and a resolution was passed calling upon the Home Office to issue a substantial government reward for the capture and conviction of the murderer, and a letter embodying this was at once sent to the Home Secretary. One of the crimes of Sunday morning took place within the precincts of the City of London, and this fact led one of the common councilmen yesterday to give notice that at the next meeting he would move that a reward of £250 should be offered by the corporation for the detection of the Meter Square murderer. But the necessity for this step was removed when later in the day the Lord Mayor, after consulting with Colonel Sir James Fraser, KCH, Chief Commissioner of Police of the City of London, announced that a reward of £500 would be given by the corporation for the detection of the miscreant. The proprietors of the Financial News, a monetary organ, also came forward on behalf of several readers with a check for £300, which was forwarded by the request to the Home Secretary, who was asked to offer that sum for the same purpose in the name of the government. The proprietors of the Evening Post, which is also chiefly devoted to the interests of the financial world, have commenced a subscription list with a sum of 50 guineas and have invited other contributions toward a reward fund. Yesterday, the murders were the one subject of conversation everywhere. Thousands of people visited the localities of the crimes, but there was nothing then to see. The police had removed all traces of the murder from the yard in Burner Street, where the unfortunate Elizabeth Stride was found with a terrible gash in her throat. While at Meter Square, there was nothing which could recall the horrible spectacle which met the eyes of Constable Watkins at a quarter to two o'clock on Sunday morning. The remains of the victim had been removed to the city mortuary and the pavement cleaned. In connection with the Meter Square case, however, the police made a startling discovery during yesterday afternoon. Sergeant Dudman had his attention drawn to 38 Meter Street, a house a short distance from the spot where the murdered woman was found, and there he found what appeared to be bloodstains upon the doorway and underneath the window, as if a person had wiped his fingers on the window ledge and drawn a bloodstained knife down part of the doorway. Mr. Hertig, who lives on the premises, said... He only just before noticed the stains. Then, quite by accident, almost immediately afterward, the same police officer had his attention drawn to similar remarks on the plate glass window of Mr. William Smith at the corner of Meter Square. But Mr. Smith scouted the idea that this could have anything to do with the murders, as the windows were covered at night by shutters. This discovery, notwithstanding, caused increased excitement for a time in the locality. The only other trace left by the murderer was a portion of an apron picked up in Goldstone Street, which corresponded with a piece left on the body of the victim. This seemed to show that the murderer had escaped in the direction of Whitechapel. During the day, all sorts of stories were brought to the police with the object of showing that more or less effective clues to the perpetrators of the murders existed. One informant deposed that... About half past ten on Saturday night, a man, aged about 33, entered a public house in Batty Street, Whitechapel. Whilst some men in the public house were talking about the Whitechapel murders, he stated that he knew the murderer and that they would hear about him in the morning, after which he left. It being thought that this was merely idle talk, no notice was taken of the matter. Another story was to the effect that a man of light complexion had been seen struggling with the woman's stride in Borner Street, and that he threw her down, 
but it being thought that it was a man and wife quarreling, nobody interfered with them. A description was circulated yesterday morning of a man who is said to have accosted a woman in the vicinity of Commercial Road on Saturday night and to have threatened to cut her throat if she did not give him money. She gave him a shilling and he went away. The young man, Albert Baybert of 13 Newham Street, Whitechapel, made a further statement yesterday morning to a press representative. The man who spoke to him in the Three Tons Hotel on Saturday night carried a black shining bag, and it is remarkable that the only man Mrs. Mortimer observed on Burner Street nearly two hours afterward also carried a black shining bag. Mrs. Mortimer said, quote, The only man whom I had seen pass through the street previously was a young man who carried a black shining bag and who walked very fast down the street from the commercial road. He looked up at the club and then went around the corner by the school, end quote. Albert Babert says, quote, On Saturday night, at about seven minutes to twelve, I entered the Three Tons Hotel, Aldgate. While in there, an elderly woman, very shabbily dressed, came in and asked me to buy some matches. I refused, and she went out. A man who had been standing by me remarked that those persons were a nuisance, to which I responded, yes. He then asked me to have a glass with him, but I refused that I had just called for one myself, he then asked me if I knew how old some of the women were who were in the habit of soliciting outside. I replied that I knew or thought that some of them who looked about 25 were over 35, the reason they looked younger being on the account of powder and paint. He asked me if I could tell him where they usually went with men, and I replied that I had heard that some went to places in Oxford Street, Whitechapel, others to some houses in Whitechapel Road and others to Bishopsgate Street. He then asked whether I thought they would go with him down Northumberly Alley, a dark and lonely court in Fenchurch Street. I said I did not know, but supposed they would. He then went outside and spoke to the woman who was selling matches and gave her something, I believe. He returned to me, and I bade him good night at about ten minutes past twelve. I believe the woman was waiting for him. I do not think I could identify the woman as I did not take particular notice of her, but I should know the man. He was a dark man, about 38 years of age, height about 5 foot 6 or 7 inches. He wore a black felt hat, dark clothes, morning coat, black tie, and carried a black shiny bag, end quote. A singular discovery which is supposed to afford an important clue to the murderer is being investigated by the police at Kentish Town. It appears that about 9 o'clock yesterday morning, the proprietor of the Nelson Tavern, Victoria Road, in Kentish Town, entered a closet on his premises for the purpose of pointing out to a builder some alterations he desired executed when a paper parcel was noticed behind the door. No particular importance was attached to the discovery until an hour later when Mr. Chino, the publican, while reading the newspaper, was struck with the similarity of this bundle to the ones of which the police have issued a description as having been in the possession of the man last seen in the company of the woman's stride. The police at Kentish Town Road Police Station were made acquainted with the discovery and a detective officer was at once sent out to prosecute inquiries. It was then discovered that this parcel was not picked up, but it was kicked into the roadway, where the paper burst and revealed a pair of dark trousers. 
The description of the man wanted for the murder gives the color of the trousers he wore as being dark. The fragments of paper were collected and found to be stained with blood, and it is stated that some hair was found also amongst some congealed blood attached to the paper. It was subsequently ascertained from some lads who had been dragging the trousers through the castle road that a poor man picked them up and carried them off. During Sunday night and yesterday, no fewer than five men were arrested in the east end of London in connection with the murders. Three were at different times conveyed to Lemon Street Police Station, but one was immediately liberated. Another was detained until noon yesterday when he was set at liberty after giving a statement of his movements. He was found to have been in straitened circumstances and to have passed much of his time in common lodging houses in Whitechapel, but there was nothing to show that he had anything to do with the murders. The third man was detained until the afternoon when he, after due inquiry, was also liberated. Of the two men detained at Commercial Street, one was liberated soon after his arrest, but the other, named Frank Raper, was kept in custody. It appears that he was arrested late on Saturday night at a public house known as Dirty Dicks near Liverpool Street. He was standing in the bar while under the influence of liquor made a number of extravagant statements about the murders of Mrs. Chapman and Mrs. Nichols. The bystanders sent out and obtained a constable and when the policeman entered, he was openly boasting of being the murderer and complimenting himself on the means he had adopted to destroy all trace of his identity. He was removed to the police station, followed by a large and excited crowd. On being charged, Raper said he had no settled address. Inquiries have satisfied the police that he is not the man wanted, and so he was set free later in the day. There was a rumor earlier yesterday morning that a man had been arrested in Southwark, but no intelligence of the fact was communicated to the city or Whitechapel police. Among the persons arrested on suspicion and released was a reporter who imagined that he might confront the murderer if he walked about at night dressed as a woman. He donned a female attire and shaved. The experiment, however, failed for his eccentric appearance caused his sex to be suspected, and he was arrested. A reporter yesterday morning visited the lodging house in Flower and Dean Street, Spitalfields, where the murdered woman, Elizabeth Stride, passed the day before her death. The street is off Commercial Street, and one side mainly consists of modern buildings, intended for artisans, but occupied mostly exclusively by a colony of middle-class Jews. On the other side are very poor and wretched houses, mostly registered lodging houses, in one of which, quote, Long Liz, end quote, as she was familiarly known by her associates, lived. A complete reign of terror prevailed in the streets. The watchman of the house, Thomas Bates, said Long Liz had lived with them many years, but her real name he never knew. She was a Swede by birth, whose husband was drowned at sea some years ago. She was a charwoman, but at times was driven by extremities to the streets. She frequently absented herself for months at a time, and she returned last Tuesday after a prolonged absence, remaining until Saturday night when she went out about seven. She appeared quite cheerful. They did not see her alive again. Mrs. Ann Mill, the bedmaker at the house, corroborated this and said a better-hearted, more good-natured, cleaner woman never lived. Though a poor unfortunate, she worked when she could get work. 
The most important clue which has yet been discovered with regard to the perpetrators of the inhumane murders in Whitechapel came to light yesterday morning through information given by Thomas Ryan, who has charge of the cabman's reading room at 43 Pickering Place in Westburn Grove. Mr. Ryan is a teetotaler and is the secretary of the cabman's branch of the Church of England Temperance Society. He has been stationed at Pickering Place for about six years and is widely known throughout the metropolis and in the country as an earnest temperance advocate. Ryan, who tells the story without affection, says, On Sunday afternoon, while he was in his little shelter, the street attendant brought a gentlemanly-looking man to him and said, This here gentleman wants a chop, governor. Can you cook one for him? He says he's almost perished with cold. The gentleman in question, Ryan says, was about five feet six inches in height and wore an Oxford cap on his head and a light-checked ulster with a tippet buttoned to his throat, which he did not loosen all the time he was in the shelter. He had a thick mustache, but no beard, and was round-headed, his eyes very restless and clean white hands. Ryan said, Come in, I'll cook one for you with pleasure. This was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Several cabmen were in the shelter at the time, and they were talking of the new murders discovered that morning at Whitechapel. Ryan exclaimed, I'd gladly do seven days and nights if I could only find the fellow who did them. This was said directly at the stranger, who, looking into Ryan's face, quietly said, Do you know who committed the murders? Then calmly went on to say, I did them. I've had a lot of trouble lately. I came back from India and got into trouble at once. I lost my watch and chain and ten pounds. Ryan was greatly taken aback at the man's statement and fancied that he was just recovering from a drinking bout, so he replied, If that's correct, you must consider yourself engaged. But he then went on to speak to him about temperance work and the evils wrought by drink. Warming to his subject, Ryan spoke of his own work amongst men who tried to induce them to become teetotalers. When the stranger said, have a drink, to Ryan, and produced a bottle from an inner pocket which was nearly full of brown liquid, either whiskey or brandy, Ryan told him he had better put the bottle away, as they were all teetotalers there, whereupon the stranger asked for a glass to take a drink himself which was refused him because Ryan said all our glasses are teetotal glass. Meanwhile, the chop was cooking, the vegetables were already waiting, and the stranger began eating. During the meal, the conversation was kept up with Ryan and the others in the shelter, all of whom thought the man was recovering from a heavy drinking bout and that his remarks as to his being the murderer were all nonsense. Ryan reasoned with him as to the folly of drinking and that at last he expressed his willingness to sign the pledge, a book containing pledges being shown to him. This the stranger examined and at length filled up one page, writing on the counterfoil as well as on the body of the pledge. In the hand of a gentleman, he wrote the following words, quote, J. Duncan, Doctor, Residence, Cabman's Shelter, 30th September, 1888, end quote. After doing this, he said, I could tell you a tale if I wanted. Then he relapsed into silence. After a pause, he went on to speak of his experiences in India, 
and said he knew the Reverend Mr. Gregson, who was engaged in temperance work among the English soldiers in India and had been for some time. He also stated that he was at Newcastle on Tyne before he went to India. Ryan called his attention to the fact that he had not filled his proper residence, and the man replied, I have no fixed place of abode at present. I am living anywhere. While Duncan was eating his chop, he again asked for something to drink, and water was brought to him. But then he said he would have ginger beer. When that was last brought him, he filled up the glass with the liquid from the bottle he had in his pocket. This he drank, said Ryan, differently to what people usually drink. He literally gulped it down. In answer to further conversation about teetotalism, Duncan accepted an invitation to go with Ryan to church that evening and afterwards accompanied him to a temperance meeting which he was going to hold. For that purpose, he said, he would return to the shelter in an hour, but he never came back. Duncan carried a stick and looked a sinewy fellow. Just such a man was capable of putting forth considerable energy when necessary. Sir James Ridson Bennett, the eminent physician, states that he has no doubt whatsoever that the East End murders have been the work of a homicidal maniac suffering probably from an erotic delusion. The mania must be so acute as to assuredly be noticeable to the persons with whom he casually associates. Sir James is confirmed in his opinion that the theory of murders being committed for psychological purposes is utterly untenable. Dr. Forbes Winslow says that he is more certain than ever that the East End murderer is a homicidal maniac and that the six murders were committed by the same man. Matthew Feeker, fruiterer, number 43, Burner Street, a few doors from the yard where the murder of the woman's stride was committed, stated that a young man and woman came to a shop at about 11 o'clock on Saturday evening for half a pound of black grapes, and he believes the fruit found in the hands of the unfortunate woman to be that which was purchased. He further stated that he did not believe he could recognize the man, as he did not take much notice of him. He was a man about 25 years of age and about 5 feet 5 inches or 6 in height. He was respectably dressed and wore a suit of dark clothes. Early yesterday morning, a police constable was passing in Whitechapel Road when he came upon a black-handled knife, keen as a razor and pointed like a carving knife. The blade was 10 inches long, about the length of the weapon assumed by Dr. Phillips to have been used by the murderer. The Vigilance Committee, of which Mr. George Lusk is chairman, report that among all the respectable residents in Whitechapel, the greatest indignation prevails at what they regard as the apathy of the Home Secretary in face of these appalling outrages. To make up for the Home Secretary's inaction as far as possible, the committee determined to offer a reward themselves. Many of the leading residents have assisted them, and they have received promises of subscriptions amounting to about £300. In addition to this, Mr. Montague, MP, has offered £100, and a similar sum has been forthcoming from other private sources. But it is felt that these sums will not have the same effect as a reward offered on the authority of the government, and accordingly it was suggested at the committee meeting that... As the Home Secretary declined to do anything, the Queen herself should be asked 
to authorize the issue of a reward. Mr. Lusk drew a petition, which on Saturday night, of course, before the knowledge of the new atrocities, was sent to Her Majesty. It is slated that the total sum now offered for the conviction of the murderer is £1,200. A meeting of the Whitechapel District Board of Works was held last evening, Mr. Robert Gladding presiding. Mr. Catmer said he thought that the board, as the local authority, should express their horror and abhorrence of the crimes which had been perpetrated in the district. The result of these tragedies has been loss of trade to the district and the stoppage of certain trades by reason of the women being afraid to pass through the streets without an escort. The inefficiency of the police was shown by the fact that but an hour or two later than the tragedies in Burner Street and Mitre Square, the post office in the vicinity had been broken into and much property stolen. The Reverend Daniel Greatero said the immigrants' houses of grants refused to locate themselves in Whitechapel, even temporarily. He ascribed the inefficiency of the police to the frequent changes of the police from one district to another, whereby the men were kept ignorant of their beats. Mr. Telfar said he hoped that these recent crimes might result in a reversion to the old system by which constables were acquainted with every corner of their beats. Mr. G.T. Brown suggested that the government should be communicated with rather than the Home Secretary or the Chief Commander of the Police, who were themselves really only on their trial. Mr. Caramelli said the change in the condition of Whitechapel in recent years would suggest an entire revision of the police arrangements. Whitechapel was now a place for the residue of the whole country and continent, but it was not a century ago. After further discussion, the following resolution was carried on the motion of Mr. Catmer, seconded by Mr. Bonham. Quote, that this board regards with horror and alarm the several atrocious murders recently perpetrated within the district of Whitechapel and its vicinity, and calls upon Sir Charles Warren so to locate and strengthen the police force in the neighborhood as to stand guard against any repetition of such atrocities, and that the Home Secretary be addressed in the same terms, end quote. The following letter was received yesterday evening by the editor of the Financial News. October 1st, 1888. My dear sir, I am directed by Mr. Matthews to acknowledge the receipt of your letter of this date containing a check for 300 pounds, which you say has been contributed on behalf of several readers of the Financial News in which you are desirous should be offered as a reward for the discovery of the recent murders in the East End of London. If Mr. Matthews had been of the opinion that the offer of a reward in these cases would have been attended by any useful result, he would himself have at once made such an offer, but he is not of that opinion. Under these circumstances, I am directed to return you the check, which I enclose, and to thank you and the gentlemen whose names you have forwarded for the liberality of their offer, which Mr. Matthews much regrets he is unable to accept. I am, sir, your very obedient servant, E. Lee Primerton. The police are convinced that the murders have been committed by one person. The description published of the man seen in company with one of the women murdered on Sunday morning corresponds almost exactly with that published a few days ago of a man who used violence toward a female in the same district, but made off on her screaming for help. Up to the late hour last evening, practically nothing fresh had come to the knowledge of the police. 
The inquest upon the body of the Mitre Square victim has been fixed for Thursday next at 11 o'clock. The body has not yet been identified. It is significant that the state of public feeling in the metropolis that constant reports are being received of the movements of what are supposed to be suspicious characters. Considerable excitement was caused in the neighborhood of Fleet Street last night by the extraordinary statements and behavior of a man who was eventually taken into custody, but it is understood simply because he was creating a disturbance and not from any belief that he had any complicity in the knowledge of the crimes. People of similar character have been detained in other parts of the Metropolitan District. Inquest on the Burner Street Victim Mr. Wynn E. Baxter, coroner for the South Middlesex, opened the inquiry yesterday at the Vestry Hall, Cable Street, St. George's in the East. On the body of Elizabeth Stride, the woman who was murdered in Burner Street, Commercial Road, early Sunday morning. Inspector Aberline of Scotland Yard was in charge of the case, assisted by Detective Inspector Reed and Detective Sergeant Thick. William West, residing at 40 Burner Street Commercial Road, printer, was the first witness called. He said that at the place where the body was found, there was held the International Working Men's Club. Facing the street, there were two windows and a doorway to the ground floor leading into a passage. At the side of the house, there was a passage into a yard, and there were two wooden gates at the entrance. The gates were sometimes kept open all night, but mostly were closed. No particular person was supposed to close the gates. There was one house in the yard which was arranged in several tenements and had three doors into the yard. There was no other way out of the yard except through the gates. Opposite the gate, there was a workshop occupied by Mr. Henley, sack manufacturers, and adjoining Henley's premises were some unoccupied stables. The witness then described the club premises. There was a printing office close to where the witness worked. The club consisted of from 75 to 80 members. Any working man of any nationality could be a member, and the club was a political and socialist one. On Saturday night, a discussion was going on, and there were about a 100 persons present. Some of the people left and went out by the street door, but about 20 or 30 members remained. Some singing followed, and the windows were partly open. The witness went into the printing office shortly after 12 o'clock and saw that the gate leading into the yard was partly open. He left the club at about quarter past 12 to go to his lodgings at 2 William Street, he noticed lights in one or two windows in the house in the yard. The singing could be heard outside. Nothing attracted his attention, particularly to the yard. He could not say whether there was any object on the ground, but there might have been. It was very dark. His brother and Louis Selza accompanied him on his way home. He had seen men and women standing about Fairclose Street, and on one occasion had seen a man and a woman near the gates of the yard. Morris Eagles, traveler in the jewelry trade of 4 New Road, Commercial Road, said he was a member of the International Club, which met at 40 Burner Street. He was in the chair during the discussion. He left the club at about half past 11 o'clock by the front door and returned about 25 minutes to 1 o'clock. The front door being closed, he went through the gateway into the yard and through a back door into the club. He did not notice anything on the ground it being very dark. 
There might have been something on the ground. He did not remember whether he had met anyone in Burner Street as he returned. Had there been a man and woman in the yard, he would have remembered them. Louis Dimeshut's steward of the club was the next witness. He stated that he left the club at about 11.30 on Saturday morning and returned home at exactly 1 o'clock on Sunday morning. He had a costermonger's barrow and pony and drove into the yard. Both gates were wide open. His pony shied and he looked on the ground and saw something lying there but could not see what it was. He jumped down and struck a match but the night being windy he could only see there was some person lying there. He went into the club and in the front room found several members and told them a woman was lying in the yard. He got a candle and went out at once and discovered the quantity of blood around the body. He did not touch the body but at once went for the police. He passed several streets without seeing a policeman and returned without one. A man named Isaacs was with him and they were both shouting for the police. Another man returned with them into the yard and took hold of the woman's hand. The witness then first saw the wound in the throat. The doctor arrived about ten minutes after the constables. The police searched everywhere and took the names and addresses of those present. Deceased clothes were in order. She was lying on her side and her face toward the wall. The doctor put his hand on her bosom and said she was still quite warm. He, witness, estimated that about two quarts of blood were around the body. He had never seen men and women in the yard. The coroner said that as yet the woman was only partially identified. The inquiry was adjourned until two o'clock today. The next day, on Tuesday, October 3rd, the Times published this article. The East End Murders Yesterday afternoon, Mr. Wynne E. Baxter, coroner for the Southeastern Division of Middlesex, resumed his inquiry at the Vestry Hall, Cable Street, St. George's in the East, respecting the death of Elizabeth Stride, who was found murdered on Burner Street Sunday morning. Detective Inspector E. Reed, H. Division, watched the case on behalf of the Criminal Investigation Department. Police Constable Henry Lamb, 252H, deposed as follows. About one o'clock, as near as I can tell, on Sunday morning, I was in the commercial road between Christian Street and Batty Street. Two men came running toward me. I went toward them and heard them say, Come on, there's been another murder. I said, Where? As they got to the corner of Burner Street, they pointed down the street. Seeing people moving about some distance down Burner Street, I ran down that street, followed by Constable 426H. I went into the gateway of number 40 Burner Street and saw something dark lying on the right-hand side, close to the gates. I turned my light on and found it was a woman. I saw that her throat was cut. She appeared to be dead. I at once sent for the other constable for the nearest doctor, and I sent a young man that was standing by to the police station to inform the inspector that a woman was lying in Burner Street with her throat cut and apparently dead. The coroner. How many people were there in the yard? Witness. I should think 20 or 30. Some of that number had followed me in. The coroner. Was anyone touching the body when you arrived? Witness. No. There was no one within a yard of it. As I was examining the body some crowded round, 
I begged them to keep back and told them they might get some blood on their clothing and by that means get themselves into trouble. I then blew my whistle. I put my hand on the face and found it slightly warm. I then felt the wrist but could not feel the pulse. Coroner. Did you do anything else to the body? Witness. I did not and would not allow anyone to get near the body. Deceased was lying on her side and her left arm was lying under her. Coroner. Did you examine her hands? Witness. I did not, but I saw that her right arm was across the breast. The coroner. How near was her head to the wall? Witness. I should say her face was about five or six inches away. The coroner. Were her clothes disturbed? Witness. No, I scarcely could see her boots. She looked as if she had been laid quietly down. Her clothes were not in the least rumpled. The coroner. Was the blood in a liquid state? Witness. Some was, and some was congealed. It extended close to the door. The part nearest to her throat was congealed. The coroner. Was any blood coming from the throat at that time? Witness. I hardly like to say that, sir. If there was, it must have been a very small quantity Dr. Blackwell, about ten minutes after I got there, was the first doctor to arrive. The coroner. Did anyone say whether the body had been touched? Witness. No. Dr. Blackwell examined the body and afterwards the surrounding ground. Dr. Phillips arrived about twenty minutes afterwards. But at that time, I was at another part of the ground. Inspector Pinhorn arrived directly after the doctor arrived. When I got there... I had the gates shut. The coroner. But did not the feet of the deceased touch the gate? Witness. No, they went just behind it, and I was able to close the gates without disturbing the body. I put a constable at the gate and told him not to let anyone in or out. I then entered the club and, starting from the front door, examined the place. I turned my light on and had a look at different persons there and examined a number of their hands and also their clothing to see if I could detect any marks of blood. I did not take up each one's hand. I should say there were some 15 to 20 persons in the club room on the ground floor. I then went into every room, including the one in which there was a stage, and I went behind it. A person was there who informed me he was the steward. The coroner. You did not think to put him in charge of the front door? Witness. No, I did not. When further assistance came, a constable was put in charge of the front door. I did not see anyone leave by that entrance and could not say if it was locked. After I examined the club, I went into the yard and examined the cottages. I also went into the water closets. The occupiers of the cottages were all in bed when I knocked. A man came down partly dressed to let me in. Everyone I saw, except this one, was undressed. The coroner. There is a recess in the yard, is there not? Did you go there? Witness. Yes, and I afterwards went there with Dr. Phillips. I examined the dustbin and dung heap. I noticed there was a boarding, but I do not recollect looking over it. After that, I went and examined the steps and outside of Monsieur Henley's premises... I also looked through the windows as the doors were fastened. The coroner. 
How long was it before the cottage doors were opened? Witness. Not long. The people seemed very much frightened and wanted to know what was the matter. I told them nothing much, as I did not want to frighten them. When I returned from there, Dr. Phillips and Chief Inspector West had arrived. The coroner. Was there anything to prevent anyone escaping while you were examining the body? Witness. It was quite possible, as I was then there myself. There was a lot of confusion, and everyone was looking toward the body. The coroner. A person might have escaped before you arrived? Witness. That is quite possible. I should think he got away before I got there, not afterwards. Inspector Reed. How long was it before you passed that spot? Witness. I was not on the beat, but I passed the commercial road end of the street some six or seven minutes before I was called. When I was fetched, I was going in the direction of Burner Street. Constable Smith is on the Burner Street beat. The constable who followed me down is on a fixed point duty from 9 to 5 at the end of Grove Street. All the fixed point men ceased their duty at 1 a.m., and then the men on the beats did the whole duty. Inspector Reed. These men are fixed at certain places, so if a person wanted a constable, he would not have to go all the way to the station for one. The coroner. Did you see anything suspicious? Witness. No, I saw lots of squabbles and rows as one sees on Saturday night. I think I should have seen anyone running from the gate of 40 Burner Street if I had been standing at the commercial road end of it. I could not tell if the lamps on the plan are correct. The coroner. I may mention there are four lamps between Commercial Road and Fairclose Street. Is the street as well lit as others in the neighborhood? Witness. It is lit about as well as side streets generally are, but some I know are better lighted. A juryman. I think that street is lighted quite as well as any other. In further examination, witness said, I remained in the yard the remainder of the night. I started to help convey the body to the mortuary, but I was fetched back. Edward Spooner said, I live at 26 Fairclose Street and am a horsekeeper at Monsieur Meredith's. Between half past twelve and one o'clock on Sunday morning, I was standing outside the Beehive Public House at the corner of Christian Street and Fairclose Street along with a young woman. I had previously been in another beer shop at the top of the street and afterwards walked down. After talking for about 25 minutes, I saw two Jews come running along and shouting, Murder and police. They then ran as far back as Grove Street and turned back. I stopped them and asked what was the matter. They replied, A woman has been murdered. I then went round with them to Burner Street and into Dutfield's yard adjoining number 40 Burner Street. I saw a woman lying just inside the gate. At that time, there were about 15 people in the yard, and they all were standing around the body. The majority of them appeared to be Jews. No one touched the body. One of them struck a match, and I lifted up the chin of the deceased with my hand. The chin was slightly warm. Blood was still flowing from the throat. I could see that she had a piece of paper doubled up in her right hand, and a red and white flower pinned on her jacket. The body was lying on one side, with the face turned toward the wall. 
I noticed that blood was running down the gutter. I stood there about five minutes before a constable came. It was the last witness who first arrived. I did not notice anyone leave while I was there, but there were a lot of people there, and a person might have got away unnoticed. The only means I had of fixing the time was by the closing of the public houses. I stood at the top of the street for about five minutes, and then 25 minutes outside the public house. I should say it was about 25 minutes to one when I first went into the yard. I could not form any opinion about the body having been moved. Several persons stood round. I noticed that the legs of the deceased were drawn up, but the clothes were not disturbed. As soon as the policeman came, I stepped back and afterward helped to fasten the gates. When I left, it was by the front door of the club. Before that, I was searched and gave my name and address. I was also examined by Dr. Phillips. By the coroner. There was no blood on the chin of the deceased, and I did not get any on my hands. Directly, I got inside the yard that I could see it was a woman lying on the ground by the jury. As I was going to Burner Street, I did not meet anyone except Mr. Harris, who came out of his house on Tiger Bay, Brunswick Street. Mr. Harris told me that he had heard the policeman's whistle blowing. Mary Malcolm said, I live at 50 Eagle Street, Red Lion Square. I am married to Andrew Malcolm, a tailor. I have seen the body in the mortuary. I saw it on Sunday and twice yesterday. It is the body of my sister, Elizabeth Watts. The coroner. You have no doubt about that? Witness. Not the slightest. The coroner. You had some doubts at first. Witness. I had, but not now. I last saw her alive at a quarter to seven last Thursday evening. She came to me where I worked at the tailoring at 59 Lyon Street. She came to me to ask me to give her a little assistance, which I have been in the habit of doing on and off for the last five years. I gave her one shilling and a little short jacket. The latter is not the one she had on when she was found in Burner Street. She only remained with me a few moments, and she did not say where she was going. I could not say where she was living, except that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of the tailors and Jews at the East End. I understood she was living in a lodging house. The coroner. Did you know what she was doing for a living? Witness. I have my doubts. The coroner. Was she the worst for drink when she came to you? Witness. She was sober, but unfortunately drink was a failing with her. The coroner. How old was she? Witness. 37. The coroner. Was she married? Witness. Yes. Mr. Watts, wine and spirit merchant of Walton Street, Bath. I think his name is Edward Watts, and he is in partnership with his father, and they are in a large way of business. My sister left her home because she brought disgrace on her husband. Her husband left her because he caught her with a porter. Her husband sent her home to her poor mother, who is now dead. She sent her two children with her, but I believe the boy has since been sent to a boarding school by his aunt, Miss Watts. The other child, a girl, was dead. I have never seen my sister in an epileptic fit, only in drunken fits. I believe she has been before the Thames Police Court magistrate on charges of drunkenness. 
I believe she has been let off on the ground that she was subject to epileptic fits, but I do not believe she was subject to them. I believe she lived with a man who kept a coffee house at Poplar. His name was not Stride, but I could not find out by tomorrow. She had ceased to live with him for some time, for he went to sea and was wrecked on the Isle of St. Paul. That was about three years ago. Since then, she had not lived with anyone, to my knowledge. The coroner. Have you heard she has been in trouble with any man? Witness. No, but she has been locked up several times. I have never heard of anyone threatening her or that she was afraid of anyone. I know of no man with whom she had any relations, and I did not know she lived in Flower and Dean Street. I knew that she was called Long Liz. The coroner. Have you ever heard of the name Stride? Witness. She never mentioned that name to me. If she had lived with anyone of that name, I am sure she would have told me. She used to come to me every Saturday. I would always give her two shillings. The coroner. Did she come last Saturday? Witness. No. Her visit on Thursday was an unusual one. Before that, she had not missed a Saturday for between two or three years. She always came at four o'clock in the afternoon, and we used to meet at the corner of Chancery Lane. On Saturday afternoon, I went there half past three and remained until five, but deceased did not turn up. On Sunday morning, when I read the paper, I wondered whether it was my sister. I had a presentiment that it was. I then went to Whitechapel and spoke to a policeman about my sister. I afterwards went to the St. George's Mortuary. When I first saw the body, I did not at first recognize it, as I only saw it by gaslight. But the next day, I recognized it. The coroner. Did you not have some special presentiment about your sister? Witness. About 1.20 a.m. on Sunday morning, I was lying in my bed when I felt a kind of pressure on my breast. I then felt three kisses on my cheek. I also heard the kisses. They were quite distinct. A juryman. Did your sister have any special mark about her? Witness. Yes, a black mark on her leg, and I saw it there yesterday. I told the police I could recognize her by this particular mark. The mark was caused by my sister being bitten by an adder some years ago, and I was bitten on the finger at the same time. Here is the mark showing it to the coroner. The coroner. Has your husband seen your sister? Witness. He has seen her once or twice some three years ago. I have another sister and a brother who are alive, but they have not seen her for years. The coroner. I hear at one time you said it was your sister, and another time you said it was not. Witness. I am sure it was. The coroner. Have you anyone that can corroborate you? Witness. Only my brother and my sister. This disgrace will kill my sister. The best thing will be for her brother to come up. I have kept this shame from everyone. Here, the witness sobbed bitterly. The coroner. Was there any special mark on your sister's feet? Witness. I know she had a hollow at the bottom of one of her feet, which was the result of an accident. The coroner. 
Did you recognize the clothes she wore? Witness. No, I did not. I never took notice of what she wore, for I was always grateful to get rid of her. Once she left a baby naked outside my door, and I had to keep it until she fetched it away. It was not one of the two children she already mentioned, but was by some policeman or another. I do not know anyone that would do her harm, for she was a girl everyone liked. The coroner. Would your brother recognize her? Witness. I am positive he could, although he has not seen her for years. I can now recognize her by the hair. The coroner. I think you ought to go again to the spot where you have been in the habit of meeting your sister to see if she comes again. You say she has not missed a single Saturday for two and a half years. How about the Saturday when she was in prison? Witness. She has always been fined and the money has been paid. Mr. Frederick William Blackwell said, I live at 10 Commercial Road and am a surgeon. At 10 minutes past 1 on Sunday morning, I was called to 40 Burner Street. I was called by a policeman, and my assistant, Mr. Johnson, went back with him. I followed immediately. I had dressed. I consulted my watch on my arrival, and it was just 1.10. The deceased was lying on her left side, completely across the yard. Her legs were drawn up, her feet against the wall of the right side of the yard passage. Her head was resting almost in the line of the carriageway, and her feet were about three yards from the gateway. The feet almost touched the wall, and the face was completely towards the wall. The neck and chest were quite warm. The legs and face were slightly warm. The hands were cold. The right hand was lying on the chest and smeared inside and out with blood. It was quite open. The left hand was lying on the ground and was partially closed and contained a small packet of cashew wrapped in tissue paper. There were no rings or marks of rings on the fingers. The appearance of the face was quite placid and the mouth was slightly open. There was a check silk scarf round the neck, the bow of which was turned to the left side and pulled tightly. There was a long incision in the neck which exactly corresponded with the lower border of the scarf. The lower edge of the scarf was slightly frayed, as if by a sharp knife. The incision in the neck commenced on the left side, two inches below the angle of the jaw and almost in a direct line with it. It nearly severed the vessels on the left side, cut the windpipe completely in two, and terminated on the opposite side, one inch below the angle of the right jaw, but without severing the vessels on that side. The post-mortem appearances will be given subsequently. By the coroner. I did not ascertain if the bloody hand had been moved. The blood was running down in the gutter into the drain. It was running in an opposite direction to the feet. There was a quantity of clotted blood just under the body. The coroner. Were there no spots of blood anywhere? Witness. No. Some of the blood had been trodden about near to where the body was lying. In the coroner. Was there any blood on the side of the house or splashes on the wall? Witness. No. It was very dark at the time, and I only examined it by the policeman's lamp. I have not since examined the place. The coroner. Did you examine the clothing? Witness. Yes. There was no blood on any portion of it. The bonnet was lying on the ground a few inches from the head. The dress was undone at the top. 
I know about what deceased had on, but could not give an accurate description of them. I noticed she had a bunch of flowers in her jacket. The injuries were beyond the possibility of self-infliction. The coroner. How long had the deceased been dead when you saw her? Witness. From 20 minutes to half an hour when I arrived. It was a very mild night and was not raining at the time. There was no wet on deceased clothing. Deceased would have bled to death comparatively slow on account of the vessels on one side being severed and the artery not completely severed. Deceased could not have cried out after the injuries were inflicted as the windpipe was severed. I felt the heart and found it quite warm. My assistant was present at the time. Dr. Phillips arrived from 20 minutes to half hour after my arrival, but I did not notice the exact time. The coroner. Could you see there was a woman there when you went in? Witness. Yes, the doors were closed when I arrived. I formed the opinion that the murderer first took hold of the silk scarf at the back of it and then pulled the deceased backwards. But I cannot say whether the throat was cut while the woman was standing or after she was pulled backwards. Deceased would take about a minute and a half to bleed to death. I cannot say whether the scarf would be tightened sufficiently to prevent deceased calling out. At this stage, the inquiry was adjourned until today. Then, the next week, on Tuesday, October 9th, the Times published a brief article about Catherine Eddowes' funeral. The East End Murders No arrest in connection with the atrocious murders at the East End had been reported up to the late hour last night either at Scotland Yard or at any city police stations and although elaborate investigations have been made, no further clue has yet been discovered. The funeral of Catherine Eddowes, the victim of the Mudder Square murder, took place yesterday at Ilford Cemetery. The body was removed shortly after 1 o'clock from the mortuary in Golden Lane, where a vast concourse of people had assembled. A strong force of the city police under Mr. Superintendent Foster was present and conducted the cortege to the city boundary. At Old Street, a large number of the Metropolitan Police were present under Inspector Barnum. The cortege passed Whitechapel Parish Church and along Mile End Road through Bow and Stratford to the cemetery. The sisters of the ill-fated woman and the man, Kelly, with whom she lived for seven years, attended the funeral. Along the whole route, great sympathy was expressed for the relatives. It is stated by a news agency that definite instructions have been issued to the police that in the events of any person being found murdered under circumstances similar to those of the recent crimes, they are not to remove the body of the victim, but to send notice immediately to the veterinary surgeon in the Southwest District who holds several trained bloodhounds in readiness to be taken to the spot where the body may be found and to be at once put on the scent. Exactly one week. After that was published, the police received another letter. Not directly, but through George Lusk. If you listen to the From Hell episode or one of the earlier articles, he was also mentioned. But George Lusk was the head of the White Chapel Vigilance Committee during the time of the murders. And on October 16, 1888, he received this letter at his home along with a box. Inside the box was half of a human kidney, preserved in wine. From hell. Mr. Lusk, sir, 
I send you half the kidney I took from the woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It's very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Losk. From Hell. That's where the graphic novel and the movie get their name. This letter also wasn't signed by Jack the Ripper. Catch Me When You Can. Maybe the different name at the end is because it was sent to George Lusk instead of directly to the police. We don't know. As you can probably imagine, the cops gave the human organ to a doctor for inspection. That doctor was Dr. Openshaw. On October 29th, Dr. Openshaw received this letter. Oh, boss, he was right. It was the left kidney. I was going to operate again close to the hospital. Just as I was going to draw my knife along the blooming throat of them cousins, the copper sport the game. But I guess I'll be on the job soon. And I will send you another bit of innards. Jack the Ripper. Oh, have you seen the devil with his microscope? The scalpel looking at a kidney with the slide cocked up? As chilling as that letter is, it's probably worth pointing out that a lot of people think that letter was actually a hoax. What many people consider to be the final murder by Jack the Ripper was the most brutal of them all, Mary Kelly. She was viciously murdered on Friday, November 9, 1888. When her body was found, one of the people on the scene was a man named Dr. Thomas Bond. He was called in to perform an examination of the body from a medicinal perspective. These are the notes that he would write later about what he saw, and I will warn you, this is some very gruesome stuff. So I know I had a parental advisor at the beginning. I'm going to say it again now. If you don't want to hear this, fast forward. Position of the body. The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed. The shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was so close to the body with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress, the elbow bent and forearm supine with the fingers clenched. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk and right forming an obtuse angle with the pubes. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed and the abdominal cavity was emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round down to the bone. The viscera were found in various parts, the uterus and kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side, and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomens and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood, and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering about two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in a number of separate splashes. Post-mortem examination. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows, and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. 
The neck was cut through the skin and the other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The skin cuts in the front of the neck showed distinct ecchymosis. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx through the cricoid cartilage. Both breasts were removed by more or less circular incisions, the muscles down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between 4th, 5th, and 6th ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the coastal arch of the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front to the bone. The flap of skin, including the external organs of generation and part of the right buttock, the left thigh was stripped of skin, fascia, and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissues to the deep muscles and reaching from the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive and jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long with extravasation of blood in the skin and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand moreover showing the same condition. On opening the thorax, it was found that the right lung was minimally adherent by old firm adhesions. The lower part of the lung was broken and torn away. The left lung was intact. It was adherent at the apex, and there were a few adhesions over the side. In the subspaces of the lung, there were several nodules of consolidation. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent. In the abdominal cavity, there was some partially digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. The Monday after Mary's brutal murder, on November 12, 1888, this article was published by The Guardian. The Terrible Murder in Whitechapel A Pardon for Any Accomplice, Several Arrests London, Sunday Night Up to midnight on Saturday, nothing of importance had been elicited with regard to the murder in Dorset Street. Conflicting statements continued to be made as to the hour at which the woman Kelly was last seen alive. One version is that she was noticed by seven women on Friday morning after 10 o'clock, so that the murderer, if this is true, must have left the house in broad daylight. Another statement is that the woman was killed by a man who accompanied her home late on Thursday night. And it is extremely difficult under the circumstance to establish even approximately the hour of the crime. The police officers engaged in the investigation had a consultation at Lehman Street Police Station on Saturday evening as to their future action. The medical evidence to be given at the inquest tomorrow will probably throw some light upon the time at which the crime was actually committed. The excitement aroused by the murder was not abated much, and Dorset Street was crowded this afternoon. Two constables guarded the entrance to the Miller's Courts and the adjacent shop, owned by the landlord of the house where the body of the murdered woman was found, was besieged. The further post-mortem examination on the body of Kelly has led the medical men to the conclusion that the woman was murdered some hours before the discovery of the crime. This conclusion, however, conflicts with the statements made today by people in the neighborhood. It is asserted that Kelly was seen alive as late as 8 o'clock on Friday morning.
She was observed at about that time standing at the entrance to Miller's Court, and one person stated that the woman was seen to purchase milk for breakfast. A young woman, known as Margaret, says that she saw Kelly on Thursday night in Dorset Street. The woman told her she was without money and intended to make away with herself. Shortly afterward, a man of shabby appearance came up, and Kelly walked away with him. Today, a strange man has been detained at Bishopgate Street Police Station. Some friends were drinking at a beer house in Fish Street Hill when one of them began conversing about the Whitechapel murder. A man named Brown, living in Dorset Street, thought he detected bloodstains on the coat of the stranger. On the latter's attention being called to it, he said it was merely paint, but Brown persisted in his statement that it was blood. The coat being loose, similar stains were seen on the man's shirt, and then he admitted that they were bloodstains. Brown followed him from the house and, when opposite Bishopgate Seat Police Station, gave him into custody. The prisoner said his name was George Compton. On being brought before the inspector on duty, he excitedly protested against being arrested in the street, alleging that in the present state of public feeling he might have been lynched. The same man had been arrested at Shadwell on Saturday by a police constable who considered his behavior suspicious, but he had been discharged. Compton does not bear any resemblance to the published description of the man who is supposed to be a murderer. Considerable importance is attached to an arrest, which was effected at the early hour this morning through the exertions of two young men living in the neighborhood of Dorset Street. Like many others in the neighborhood, they appear to have transformed themselves into amateur detectives and have been on the lookout for suspicious persons. About three o'clock this morning, their attention was drawn to two men in Dorset Street who were loitering about. The two men separated, and one of them was followed by these youths into Houndsditch. They carefully observed his appearance. He looked, they thought, like a foreigner. He was about five feet eight inches in height and had a long pointed mustache. He was dressed in a long black overcoat and a deer-stalking hat. When near Bishopsgate Street, the young men spoke to the policeman, who at once stopped the stranger and took him to the Bishopsgate Street police station. Here he was searched and found he was carrying a sort of pocket metal chest containing several small bottles of chloroform. In rather imperfect English, he explained that he lived in Pimlico, where he was well known. After this preliminary examination, he was taken to Commercial Street Police Station, in which district the murder was committed. He was detained on suspicion, but subsequently was taken to Marlborough Street Police Station for the purpose of facilitating his identification. Another man is detained at Commercial Street Station on account of his suspicious movements. Information from the East End later states that all the men who were in custody today have given satisfactory explanations of their movements and have been released. Our Cork correspondent telegraphs, the details of the Whitechapel murder have created additional interest in Limerick, owing to the statement that the murdered woman was a native of Limerick, and that she went with her parents to Wales some years ago, that she there married a collier named Duras, who was killed in an explosion after which she proceeded to London. The local police have made some inquiries on the subject, but they have not to the present been able to elicit any information that would warrant them in confirming or contradicting the report. A telegram sent shortly before midnight says, Excitement was caused shortly before 10 o'clock in the East End 
by the arrest of a man with a blackened face who publicly proclaimed himself to be Jack the Ripper. This was at the corner of Wentworth Street, Commercial Street, near the scene of the crime. Two young men, one a discharged soldier, immediately seized him, and the crowd raised a cry of lynch him. Sticks were raised, and the man was furiously attacked. But for the timely arrival of the police, he would have been seriously injured. On being taken to Lehman Street Station, he refused to give any name, but asserted that he was a doctor at St. George's Hospital. His age is about 35, height 5 foot 7 inches, complexion dark. In his pocket, he had a double-peak light-check cap, and at the time of his arrest was bareheaded. It took four constables and four civilians to convey him to the station and protect him from the infuriated crowd. He is detained in custody, and it seems the police attach some importance to the arrest, as the man's appearance answers to the description of the man wanted. The Scotland Yard authorities have issued the following proclamation, quote, Murder. Pardon. Whereas on November the 8th or 9th in Miller's Court, Dorset Street, Spitfields, Mary Janet Kelly was murdered by some person or persons unknown. The Secretary of State will advise the grant of Her Majesty's gracious pardon to any accomplice not being the person who contrived or actually committed the murder. Who shall give such information and evidence as shall lead to the discovery and conviction of the person or persons who committed the murder? Signed, Charles Warren, the Commissioner of the Police of the Metropolis. End quote. A somewhat important investigation was made on Saturday in the room in Miller's Court in which the woman was murdered. The police had reason to believe that the murderer had burnt something before leaving the room after the crime, and accordingly, the ashes and other matter in the grate were carefully preserved. On Saturday afternoon, Dr. Phillips and Dr. McDonald, the coroner for the district, visited Miller's Court, and after the refuse had been passed through with a sieve, it was subjected to the closest scrutiny by the medical gentleman. Nothing, however, was found at the examination which is likely to afford any assistance or clue to the police. A special correspondent who on Saturday night visited the scene of the murder writes, The court, a narrow alley, so narrow indeed as to allow only one person going in at a time, was guarded by police who refused to allow anyone to pass. But the 30 or 40 people assembled seemed satisfied with their proximity to the place and lounged about talking to one another in hushed tones. The scene of the murder is the fourth house on the right-hand side up a passage, but even were the curious admitted, they would find but little to satisfy their curiosity, seeing that the solitary window giving the light to the human shamble is boarded up. The scene without is lugubrious in the extreme. The slippery pavement, the drizzling rain, for it is raining now, and the little crowd assembled without, conversing in hushed tones, all combined to give an air of dread to the surroundings. The only voices to be heard are those of the interrant vendors and street literature, and their cries of the wares they have to sell jar on the ear of the spectator. Here you are, all about Jack the Ripper, shouts one peddler, while another hawks the truth about the Whitechapel murders in a husky voice, but without attracting much custom. Within a stone's throw of this is a building brilliantly illuminated, toward which a goodly stream of people are yet winding their way. This is the Cambridge Music Hall, an extremely popular place of entertainment, which is nightly crowded with large audiences. I went in to satisfy my curiosity and found the place crammed 
from floor to ceiling, some 2,500 persons being accommodated. The contrast between this place of amusement and the perilous of the surrounding alleys is marked indeed. On quitting the music hall, I again went down to Commercial Road. It is close on midnight, but the public houses are not yet closed, so on the chance of seeing some characters, I enter the nearest. It is the Britannia, situated on the corner of Dorset Street, and I have a difficulty in wedging myself through the crowd which fills the bar to overflowing. In a rare conglomeration, this crowd is English, Germans, Swedes, and Lascars, all the creeds and callings. And there is only one topic of conversation, the murders. I have a word with the landlady. You are doing a rare trade tonight, I say. Yes, comes the reply. More than we care about and more than we care to do again. The answer is suggestive. And so the time passes on. Midnight has passed. The pedestrians are fewer, noisier than before. But the drunken men and the dissolute women are as notable as earlier in the evening. At a quarter to one, I pay a second visit to Dorset Street. The entrance to the court where the murder was committed is guarded by a single constable. In the road stands a second engaged in persuading the loiterers to pass along. The people banging about are not more than a dozen, but most of them are the worst for drink, the majority women. Immediately opposite the court are large common lodging houses. On the pavement outside this lies a gypsy woman. In her arms, an infant, not more than five months old. The woman is sleepy and quarrelsome, the infant crying. A policeman stands over the mother, endeavoring to reason with her, but it is a difficult task. At last, however, he succeeds, and she moves unsteadily on to lie down in the mud in some more peaceable pitch. The whole surroundings are miserable and depressing. The existence of such wretchedness is sufficient to account for any horrors and the very spectacle of so many luckless females wandering about friendless and homeless, panic-stricken by the atrocities so fresh in their ears, and no one knowing but that she may be the next victim of the fiend or madman still at large, are facts pregnant with material for the student of sociology. The remarkable thing about this crime, says the observer, is that it seems, according to the evidence of a woman who is apparently very respectable, to have been committed in broad daylight. And but a stone's throw from where the other unfortunate women were killed and mutilated. The spot, too, is surrounded by thoroughfares through which thousands of persons are continually passing to and fro. number of lodging houses are in the immediate vicinity, and one large one faces the entrance to the court where the deed was done. The window, too, of the room where the woman was murdered was found quite exposed to public view. It is strange under these circumstances that the assassin could escape detection. Several women have made statements in reference to a man who was seen in the neighborhood carrying a black, shiny bag, who behaved in suspicious manners, and their description of him is very similar. As to the exact hour of the murder that was committed, a statement by Mrs. Maxwell shows it must have been in the daylight. She said, quote, I assist my husband in his duties, but we live next door at 26 Dorset Street. We stay up all night, and on Friday, as I was going home, carrying my lantern and other things with me, I saw the woman, Kelly, standing at the entrance of the court. 
It was then half past eight, and as it was unusual for her to be out and about at that hour, I said to her, Hello, what are you doing up so early? She said, Oh, I'm very bad this morning. I have had the horrors. I have been drinking so much lately. I said to her, Why don't you go and have a half a pint of beer? It will put you right. She replied, I've just had one, but I'm so bad, I couldn't keep it down. I didn't know then that she had separated from the man she had been living with, and I thought that he had been paying her. I then went out in the direction of Bishopgate to do some errands, and on my return I saw Kelly standing outside the public house talking to a man. That was the last I saw of her, end quote. Mrs. Marshall is very positive as to this statement. Other people who have been interviewed state that the unfortunate woman never left the house after she entered it on Thursday night. But, on the other hand, several others say that she came out of the house the next morning. Mrs. Kennedy, who was on the day of the murder staying with her parents at a house facing the room where the mutilated body was found, has made an important statement. She says that about 3 o'clock on Friday morning, she entered Dorset Street on her way to the house of her parents, which is situated immediately opposite that in which the murder was committed. She noticed three persons at the corner of the street near the Britannia public house. There was a man, a young man, respectably dressed with a dark mustache, talking to a woman whom she did not know, and also a female poorly clad and without any headgear. The man and woman appeared to be the worse for liquor, and she heard the man say, Are you coming? Whereupon the woman, who appeared to be obstinate, turned in the opposite direction to which the man apparently wished her to go. Mrs. Kennedy went on her way, and nothing unusual occurred until about half an hour later. She states she did not retire to rest immediately when she reached her parents' abode, but sat up, and between half past three and a quarter to four, she heard a cry of murder in the woman's voice proceed from the direction in which Mary Kelly's room is situated. As the cry was not repeated, she took no further notice of the circumstance until the morning when she found the police in possession of the place, preventing all egress to the occupants of the small houses in the court. She has since supplemented her statement by the following, quote, on Wednesday evening, about 8 o'clock, I and my sister were in the neighborhood of Bethnal Green Road when we were accosted by a very suspicious-looking man about 40 years of age. He was about 5 feet, 7 inches high, wore a short jacket, over which he had a long topcoat. He had a black mustache and wore a billycock hat. He invited us to accompany him to a lonely spot as he was known about there and there was a policeman looking at him, end quote. She asserts that no policeman was in sight. He made several strange remarks and appeared to be agitated. He was very white in the face and made every endeavor to prevent them from looking him straight in the face. He carried a black bag. He avoided walking with them and led the way to a very dark thoroughfare at the back of a warehouse, inviting them to follow, which they did. He then pushed open a small door in a pair of large gates and requested one of them to follow him, remarking, I only want one of you. Whereupon the women became suspicious. He acted in a very strange and suspicious manner, and refused to leave his bag in possession of one of the females. Both women became alarmed at his action, and escaped at the time raising the alarm of Jack the Ripper. 
A gentleman who was passing is stated to have intercepted the men while the women made their escape. Mrs. Kennedy asserts that the man whom she saw yesterday morning with the women at the corner of Dorset Street resembled very closely the individual who caused such alarm on the night in question and that she would recognize him again if she confronted with him. There is no cause to doubt this woman's statement. The stories told by both these women are certainly the most important points that came to light on Saturday. Joseph Barnett, the man who lived with the deceased woman Kelly as her husband until last week, has made the following statement. Quote, I first met the deceased last Easter, 12 month, and lived with her from that time till last Tuesday. I was in decent work in Billingsgate Market when I first met her. She told me her maiden name was Marie Jeanette Kelly and that she was born in Limerick. Her parents, who were fairly well off, removed when she was a child to Wales, and they lived in Carmarthenshire. When she was but a little over 16 years of age, she married a collier, but I do not remember his name. He was killed in an explosion in the mine, and then Marie went off to Cardiff with her cousin. Thence she went to France, but remained only a short time. Afterwards, she lived in an immoral house in the west end of London, but drifted from the west end to the east end, where she took lodgings in Pennington Street. Her father came from Wales and tried to find her there, but hearing from her companions that he was looking for her, Marie kept out of the way. A brother in the 2nd Battalion Scots Guard came to see her once, but beyond that she saw none of her relations, nor did she correspond with them. When she was in Pennington Street, a man named Morganstone lived with her, and subsequently a man named Joseph Fleming passed as her husband. She lived with me, first of all, in George Street, then in Paternoster Court, Dorset Street, but finally we took lodgings about four months ago in Miller's Court, where the murder occurred. I last saw her alive at 7.30 on Thursday night. Next day, I heard there had been a murder in Miller's Court, and on my way there, I met my sister's brother-in-law, and he told me that it was Marie. I went to the court, and there saw the police inspector, and told him who I was, and where I had been the previous night. They kept me about four hours, examined my clothes for bloodstains, and finally, finding the account of myself to be correct, let me go free. End quote. The following are the dates of the crimes and the names of the previous victims of the Whitechapel assassin. Number one, April 3rd, Emma Elizabeth Smith, found murdered near Osborne and Wentworth Streets, Whitechapel. Number two, August 7th, Martha Turner, found stabbed in 39 places on a landing in model dwellings known as George Yard Buildings, Commercial Street, Spitalfield. Number 3, August 31st, Mrs. Nichols, murdered and mutilated in Bucks Row, Whitechapel. Number 4, September 7th, Mrs. Chapman, murdered and mutilated in Hanbury Street, Whitechapel. Number 5, September 30th, Elizabeth Stride, found with her throat cut in Burner Street, Whitechapel. Number 6, September 30th, Catherine Eddowes, murdered and mutilated in Mitre Square, Altgate. You'll notice that the article there mentions that Annie Chapman was murdered on September 7th, but it was actually September 8th. But did you notice the mention about something being burnt? Was it Mary's heart, like we saw in the movie? 
After all, Dr. Bond's medical report said it was missing. But as we learned in the From Hell episode, it's not likely. Even the article mentions that they did an examination. They couldn't really tell. They couldn't tell exactly what it was. So, as is the case with pretty much everything so far, the answer is maybe. Understandably, London, in particular Whitechapel, was terrified by the murders. Any sort of strangeness late at night was suspect or cause for alarm. While not everyone agrees that this next murder was a victim of Jack the Ripper, Rose Milette was killed on Thursday, December 20th. This article is from The Times, published just after Christmas on December 26th. The Poplar Murder The police are said to have succeeded in establishing the identity of the unfortunate woman who was murdered on Thursday last in Clark's Yard, High Street, Poplar. It would appear that she was known in Poplar by the name of Downey or Down, and in Whitechapel, which it has been discovered was the last neighborhood in which she lived by the name of Davis. Both these names have, however, been found to be assumed. The police, after some considerable difficulty, secured the attendance at the Poplar mortuary yesterday of Elizabeth Usher, the head nurse at the Bromley Sick Asylum, where the deceased woman was stated to have been an inmate. Miss Usher immediately recognized the woman as Rose Milet, or Milet, that's M-I-L-E-T-T, or M-Y-L-E-T-T, who had been an inmate of that institution on several occasions. There can be but little doubt that the name under which Miss Usher recognized her is her real name, for the books of the asylum were referred to, and it was discovered that she last entered the asylum on the 20th of January, 1888, and discharged herself on the 14th of March last. On each occasion, she went in under the same name and for treatment of the same disease. The police have found that the woman lived in a common lodging house in George Street, a thoroughfare in Spitalfields, made notorious by the recent attempt to murder a woman in a similar establishment. There was another body discovered on Wednesday, July 17, 1889. This article was published that very same day in The Guardian. Murder in the East End Shortly before one o'clock this morning, a constable on his beat while passing through Castle Alley in Whitechapel noticed the form of a woman lying in the shadow of a doorway. He at first thought it was one of the wanderers so numerous in the neighborhood, especially at this season, and was about to rouse the woman when he was horrified to discover that she was dead, blood flowing from a wound in the throat. The body was in a pool of blood which flowed from a gash in the stomach, evidently inflicted with a sharp knife or razor. The officer at once gave the alarm, and within a few minutes, several other constables were on the spot. The officials at the Commercial Road Station were informed of the discovery, and the superintendent in charge at once dispatched a messenger in a cab for the divisional surgeon. From what could be ascertained in the neighborhood, the murdered woman seemed to be about 40 years of age and seemed to have belonged to the unfortunate class. The neighborhood is closely watched by police, and no one had been arrested up to 2 o'clock. Comparing that to something in the movie, you remember when Heather Graham's version of Mary Kelly jokes about how London doesn't have whores, they just have unfortunate women? Well, 
that's actually based in things like what we heard in that article where they call them the unfortunate class. So that was from July 17th. And then the very next day, the victim's body was identified as Alice McKenzie. This is from The Guardian on July 18th. The woman who was found murdered in Whitechapel, London, early yesterday has been identified as Alice McKenzie, a resident in the neighborhood. A man with whom she had been living says she came from Petersburg. The inquest was opened yesterday afternoon and evidence was forthcoming to throw any light the crime. Later in the year, on Tuesday, September 10th, 1889, the Pynchon Street torso was found. The victim was never identified. We don't really know if it's tied to Jack the Ripper, but some suggest that it was. So here's an article from the Times, published the very next day on September 11th, 1889. Another murder and mutilation in Whitechapel. Early yesterday morning, a discovery was made which leads to the belief that another horrible murder has been committed in Whitechapel and that the victim, a woman, belongs to the same class as the eight who have been murdered in the same locality during the last two years. The manner in which the body has been mutilated suggests that the outrage has been committed by the same person. About half past five o'clock yesterday morning, Police Constable Bennett 239H, was passing on his beat by a railway arch in Pynchon Street, St. George's, when he noticed something in the arch. The place in question is used as a receptacle for stones belonging to the District Board of Works, and in front of it, there is a boarding. Part of this, however, has been broken down, and the officer, getting through it, was horrified to find the trunk of a woman in a condition which showed it had been hacked about in the most brutal manner. The head had been severed from the body, while both legs were also missing, and from the lower part of the stomach was a deep gash through which the bowels were protruding. In accordance with instructions that had been given to all police in the district, the constable did not move, but blew his whistle for assistance. In a few seconds, two other constables came up, and on being made acquainted with the discovery, started for King David Lane Police Station. When further assistance was sent to Pynchon Street, and the news telegraphed to the heads of police and to the whole of the stations within the Metropolitan District. In order to save as much time as possible, an order has been for some time past been in force that whenever a murder is discovered in the East End, the telegraphic code should simply be, quote, another Whitechapel, end quote. Consequently, as soon as these two words were telegraphed over the district, every outlet in the immediate neighborhood was blocked. Superintendent T. Arnold and Detective Inspector Reed, H. Division, were soon on the spot giving instructions for the place to be searched, while the Thames Police, under Detective Inspector Reagan, were busily engaged in searching the vessels in the river and docks, notably the cattle boats. While the constable was standing by the body, he heard a noise inside the arch, and three working men came out, saying they were homeless and had been in there asleep. They stated that when they entered the arch after midnight, they saw nothing of the body and heard no alarming or suspicious sounds during the night. These men were detained and afterwards conveyed to the Lehman Street Police Station until proper inquiries could be made concerning them. Dr. Clark, who is acting for Dr. Phillips, the divisional surgeon who is away on his holidays, 
together with Dr. Sargent, who practices in the neighborhood, was soon on the spot and minutely examined the body. They were of the opinion that the death had occurred at least three days previously, as all the blood had dried and signs of decomposition were starting to set in. Other details having been obtained, a police ambulance was brought and the trunk of the body conveyed on it to St. George's Mortuary, where the doctors again examined it. The result of that examination was that the police afterwards issued the following notice, quote, Found at 5.40 this morning, the trunk of a woman under railway arches in Pynchon Street, Whitechapel, age about 40, height 5 foot 3 inches, hair dark brown, no clothing except chemise, which is much torn and bloodstained, both elbows discolored as from habitually leaning on them, postmortem marks apparently of the rope having been tied around the waist, end quote. Dr. Sargent was heard to say that the head had been cut off in a very skillful manner. The medical men were also of the opinion that the cuts were inflicted by a left-handed person, which fact points to the murderer being the same person who killed the eight other poor creatures, as in each instance the cuts were supposed to have been the work of a left-handed person. From the appearance of the breasts, it is believed that the woman had not borne children. Within half an hour of the discovery of the trunk, Mr. Monroe, Chief Commissioner of the Police, and Colonel Monsell, Assistant Commissioner, visited the spot and personally directed the movements of the detective officers, who were then busily engaged in making inquiries under the direction of the Detective Inspector Swanson of Scotland Yard. This officer is well fitted for the task given him, as he is an old, quote, East Ender, end quote, and consequently is well acquainted with the locality. Later in the day, Dr. Clark, assisted by Dr. Hibbett, Dr. Sargent, Dr. Appleford, and others, made a post-mortem examination, the result of which will not be made known until the inquest, which will be held at the Vestry Hall, St. George's, this morning, by Mr. Wynne E. Baxter. Within a few minutes of the discovery, the front of the arch, and in fact the whole of Pynchon Street, was crowded with hundreds of persons, and the excitement was intense. Indeed, it was growing during the whole of yesterday, and the discovery was almost the sole topic of conversation amongst those living in the East End. The spot where the body was found is at night time a very lonely one, and only frequented by the poorest class, who seek refuge under some of the many railway arches which abound in the district. Carts and barrows stand against the wall. There is only one exit to the place, and that is by way of Backchurch Lane. The police are confident that the trunk had only been conveyed to the spot shortly before it was found, and they are making strenuous endeavors to find the missing portions, which they are inclined to think have also been concealed in the immediate neighborhood. They also believe that the spot where the murder was committed and where the body it was dismembered would be in a bad condition through the flowing of blood, and these facts might serve to supply some clue to the place. From the latter examination made by the doctors, it is believed that the trunk belonged to a woman of slim build, and that she had been in somewhat neglected condition. The organs also indicate that the deceased woman had been addicted to drink. The difficulty in identifying the remains is obvious, owing to the absence of the head. There are no marks on the fingers of any rings having been worn, and it is evident that this latest victim belonged to the poorest class of women. The hands presented a dirty and neglected appearance, but, as far as could be ascertained at the first cursory examination, there were no birthmarks by which the body could be identified. 
Large numbers of women have applied to the constable in charge of the remains at the mortuary for permission to view them, but their requests have been refused, as it is not possible for them to say to whom the trunk belonged. The legs had undoubtedly been severed with some sharp instrument, and in such a matter as to indicate a knowledge of surgery or butchery. The hands were not clenched, a fact which seemed to show that the deceased woman had not been struggling before death. The left arm was bent, and the fingers of the left hand reposed on the chest, while the right arm was a bit more extended. These facts point to the probability that the amputation took place after death. The deep gash above referred to was the only kind of mutilation about the body, with the exception of the removal of a small portion of the lower part of the trunk. The fingers are long and tapering. The police, after full investigation, gave it as their opinion that the murderer, if it be such, was not done by the person now known as Jack the Ripper. They inclined to the belief that the deceased may have died from an illegal operation and that the body was afterwards cut up so as to be more easily disposed of with a view to preventing discovery. They wished this fact to be made known, as by that means something might be learned to elucidate the mystery. The police also believe that the body could not have been brought far, as, owing to the bad odor arising from it, the carrier of the burden would have been noticed and probably stopped. They are therefore making a house-to-house search in the neighboring and surrounding streets where the body was found. Under the arch, there is no blood, and this fact confirms the theory that the body was carried there after it had been mutilated. Amongst the poor living near the spot, there is a report current that a woman named Hart, who is well known as a dissipated creature, has been missing for three or four days. The police are making strenuous endeavors to find the whereabouts of this woman. At the same time, it is no uncommon thing for women of her class to absent themselves from their regular haunts for days together. They come and go as the whim takes them. All persons living in Pynchon Street have been closely questioned, but these deny all knowledge of having seen anything unusual in the street on the previous night, or, in fact, at any time. The arches which run along the street belong to the London, Tilbury, and South End Railway Company. During the search in the neighboring streets, a piece of cloth stained with blood was found, but its connection with the dead woman is not certain. The post-mortem marks on the body show that a cord had been tightly tied around it, but for what purpose it is not ascertained, and at the present this remains a mystery. The trunk measured 2 feet 3 inches and the arms 2 feet 2 inches, while the waist 33 inches. The three men who were detained have since been liberated, as their statement as to going into the arch to sleep has been verified. The following is a list of the East End murders. Number 1. December 1887. Unknown woman found murdered near Osborne and Wentworth Streets, Whitechapel. Number 2. August 7, 1888. Martha Turner found stabbed in 39 places on a landing of the model dwellings in George Yard Buildings, Whitechapel. Number 3. August 31, 1888. Mary Ann Nichols murdered and mutilated in Baker's Row, Whitechapel. Number 4. September 8, 1888. Mary Ann Chapman murdered and mutilated in Hanbury Street, Whitechapel. Number 5. September 30, 1888. Elizabeth Stride found with her throat cut in Burner Street, St. George's. Number 6. September 30, 1888. Mrs. May Eddowes murdered and mutilated 
in Mitre Square, Aldgate. Number 7, November 9, 1888, Mary Jane Kelly, murdered and mutilated in Dorset Street, Spitalfields. Number 9, July 17, 1889, Alice McKenzie, murdered and mutilated in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. Number 9, the woman whose mutilated body was found yesterday morning. Yesterday afternoon, the officers of the Criminal Investigation Department made a further examination of the surrounding arches and waste grounds and yards in close proximity, but were unable to discover anything fresh. There are no signs of the body having been dragged along the ground, and it is conjectured that someone carried it to the outside of the place where it was discovered, got rid of his load by dropping it over the boarding, and at once made good his escape. All the police officers on duty in the district at the time state they saw no one carrying a bundle, neither did they see anyone drawing or driving a vehicle of any kind in which a body might have been concealed. The excitement was still very great in the East End last night, and the feeling of terror that existed until a few weeks since has revived with renewed force. Extra detective officers have again been drafted into the district, and during the evening some thousands of persons visited Pynchon Street and viewed the front of the arch where the body was found, before which are stationed two police officers. It is believed the coroner will only take sufficient evidence to justify him in adjourning the inquiry so as to give the police an opportunity of finding the missing portions of the body. A news agency says, quote, The cleanliness of the cuts and the knowledge of the surgery displayed in dissecting the body would suggest that this crime is not the work of Jack the Ripper. He did all his terrible work firmly, but without any approach to scientific knowledge. The present crime bears a closer resemblance to the mysterious outrages at Rainham on the Thames Embankment near Whitehall and at Battersea than to the terrible deeds of the Ripper. In each of the foregoing cases, the heads were missing and the manner of mutilation was very similar. It is most probable that the murderer took advantage of the scare produced by the Ripper tragedies to dispose of his victim in a way and in such a place as should throw all suspicion upon that unknown person. End quote. A conference to which it is believed considerable importance is attached, took place last evening at the Lehman Street Police Station. Dr. Phillips arrived in London about 5 p.m. yesterday and, after making some preliminary investigations, attended the Lehman Street Police Station soon after 6 o'clock. Here, he met Chief Constable Colonel Monsell, Mr. Arnold, and the officers from Scotland Yard. At 7 p.m., Mr. Monroe, the chief commissioner, arrived at the station in his private carriage and joined in the deliberations, which continued until nearly half past 8 o'clock. The police at Arbor Square Station have detained a seafaring man on suspicion, but no importance is attached to his arrest. Last week, a letter was found at the rear of the East London Hospital announcing the intention of the writer to perpetrate another murder immediately. The letter was handed to the police, but no importance was attached to it in view of the number of such documents which have found their way to the hands of the authorities. Last night, another letter was found in Whitechapel containing the following words, quote, I told you last week I would do another murder, end quote. The writing of the documents has been compared, but the result is not yet known. It is a somewhat remarkable fact that one of the Whitechapel murders of last year took place on September 8th. Consequently, the present crime must have been perpetrated at a time only a few hours removed from the exact anniversary of the previous atrocity. Scotch newspapers of August 31st give the following account of a delivery of human remains in Edinburgh. 
Quote, While one of the cleaners of the Union Canal named Thomas Clark was engaged in taking refuse from the canal near Fountain Bridge, he was horrified on bringing to the surface the left leg of a human being. The leg was not very much decomposed and appeared to have been sawn off below the knee. It is supposed that a murder has been committed. Search is being instituted for more remains. The spot at which the limb was found is beside the city slaughterhouse, end quote. It is suggested that inquiry should be made to ascertain whether the limb found in Edinburgh is a portion of the body found yesterday. As you can tell from that article, even at the time, the doctors and police did not believe that the Pynchon Street torso was a Jack the Ripper victim. Now, Jack the Ripper's final victim, well, again, there's controversy about whether or not Francis Cole was a Ripper victim, kind of like the past few that we've looked at. But some insist that she was, and she was murdered the day before Valentine's Day on Friday, February 13th, 1891. The next week, on Tuesday the 17th, this article was published by the Times. The Whitechapel Murder The police, after detaining the man James Thomas Sadler upwards of 40 hours in the Lehman Street police station, considered that they had then sufficient evidence to charge him with the willful murder of the young woman who has now been positively identified as Frances Coles, and the charge was formally preferred by Detective Inspector Moore about 12 o'clock on Sunday night. With regard to this, the police in charge of the case have acted in an unusual manner, As late as yesterday morning, Superintendent Arnold issued strict orders to the officers engaged at the police court that no information was to be given to anyone as to whether the man was to be brought before the magistrate or not. In addition to the evidence of the witnesses who will be called at a future date to prove the connection of the accused man and the deceased woman, another most important fact has been brought to light through the exertions of Detective Sergeants Record and Ward. These officers, in the course of their inquiries, are said to have found a man named Donald Campbell, who was able to furnish them with the startling facts concerning a knife, which he said he purchased from Sadler on Friday morning. Campbell, who is a seafaring man and at present staying at the sailor's home, Well Street, Whitechapel, stated that at about 11 o'clock on Friday morning at the home, he saw Sadler, whom he had not met before. The latter produced a strange-shaped knife and offered it for sale for a shilling. Campbell purchased the knife, and after receiving the money, Sadler went away. The purchaser then noticed that the handle had a clammy feeling and that the blade was stained. He washed the knife, and in so doing, he saw the water had a reddish appearance. Campbell afterwards sold the knife, but was able to furnish the detective officers with the name of the person who had purchased it from him. By that means, it was secured. On Sunday morning, Campbell went to the Lehman Street police station and picked Sadler out from amongst a number of other men. On Sunday, Sadler complained of a pain in his side, and on being examined by the divisional surgeon, he found he was to be suffering from a broken rib. Yesterday, Dr. Hoochin visited the Arbor Square police station and treated the injury. Sadler, while being detained at the police station, was not able to give any coherent account of his movements after an early hour on Thursday night, owing to the condition that he was in from the effects of drink. 
He stated that he met the deceased woman on Wednesday and passed that night with her at a common lodging house. During the greater portion of Thursday, he was in her company and gave her money. He strongly denies having had anything to do with her death. The police still inclined to the belief that the prisoner has had nothing to do with the previous murders in Whitechapel, and, in fact, one or two of his discharges proved that he was away at sea at the time of some of them that were committed. It has been ascertained that the woman, Coles, was the daughter of an old bootmaker who is now an inmate of the Bermondsey Workhouse. She was 25 years of age and, at one time, was engaged in an East End bottling warehouse. At the Thames Police Court yesterday afternoon, before Mr. Mead, James Thomas Sadler, 53, described as a ship's fireman residing at the Victoria Lodging House, Upper East Smithfield, was charged by Detective Inspector Moore of the Criminal Investigation Department with willfully causing the death of Frances Coles by cutting her throat with a knife or some sharp instrument at Swallows Gardens on the 13th. Superintendent T. Arnold and Chief Inspector Swanson watched the case on behalf of the commissioners of police. The accused is appeared to be still suffering from the effects of drink. During the evidence of the witnesses, he listened attentively to all that was said and frequently interrupted them. Superintendent Arnold asked that only the evidence of arrest might be then taken in order that the Treasury might take up the case on the next occasion. Mr. Meade said he must have some evidence to commit the prisoner with the charge that was preferred against him. Samuel Harris was then called and, in answer to the magistrate's clerk, said, I am a fish curer and live at 8 White's Row, Spitalfields. I was in my dwelling house at about half past nine on Thursday. I had been there about an hour and a half when I saw a woman whom I knew by the name of Francis. She was sitting on a form with her head resting on a table. That was in the kitchen of the lodging house. About half past eleven, I saw a man come in. The prisoner is that man. He was alone. He looked round the kitchen, in which there were other men and women. Then he sat down by the side of Francis. I heard him ask her if she had any lodging money. She looked up at him and again laid her head on the table, but made no reply. He then said, quote, I have been robbed, and if I knew who had done it, I would do for them, end quote. The prisoner, be careful. Witness, continuing, said, About half past twelve, he went out alone, and the woman still remained in the kitchen. Superintendent Arnold, can I ask him a question? Mr. Mead, certainly not. It is only an advocate's privilege to do that. Witness, before he went out, he produced a certificate, a money discharge. The prisoner, an account of wages. Witness, continuing, said, He asked me to let him go up to bed, and I could take care of the document. I noticed he had to take about four pounds odd. About three or four minutes afterwards, I saw Frances tuck a black crepe hat under her dress. At the time, she was wearing another hat. Then she walked out by the clerk. The following afternoon, the police took me to the mortuary, and I recognized the woman, the prisoner. I wished to jog his memory about what he said about the robbery. The girl was with me when I was robbed. Just read that part again, please. The clerk, having done so, the accused said, I wish him to verify that statement or draw it back that I would do for them. 
Witness. You did say that. Prisoner was drunk, and so was the woman. I noticed he had a bruise over the left eye. The blood was coming from the place where I now see the mark. The prisoner had a lot of blood on this side, too, which he does not seem to have noticed. Sergeant W. Edwards, 7H, said, Shortly before 2 o'clock on Friday morning, I was on duty on the mint pavement. I saw the prisoner, who, in my own opinion, was drunk. I could see he was suffering from a cut over the left eye, and he said he had been knocked about by some men at the dock gates. The prisoner. That is quite right. Witness. I asked him how it had occurred. He replied, quote, I was going to my ship, which is lying in the dock, and the gatekeeper refused to admit me. As I dare say, I was drunk. The gatekeeper told me if it wasn't for one man, a metropolitan constable who was there, he would give me what I deserved, good hiding, and if the officer would only turn his back, he would do it then. The constable walked away when a gang of dock laborers came out of the gates, started on me, knocked me down, and kicked me in the ribs. I believe my ribs are broken, end quote. I walked about 30 yards with the prisoner, and I examined his ribs to see if they were broken. I was not satisfied and offered to take him to the hospital. Constable Hyde came up, and he also examined his ribs, and when we thought he was all right, the prisoner said, quote, I believe I am not so much hurt as I thought I was, end quote. And then he walked toward the Minories. At 2.45, I was informed that the body of a woman had been found. When I saw the prisoner, I was at about 500 yards from Swallow Gardens. In my opinion, he was certainly drunk. I saw nothing of the woman previously. The prisoner. I think he is pretty near the mark. I was drunk, and I thought I was going the other way. William Fuel said, I am night porter in the receiving room of the London Hospital. A little before five on Friday morning, I was on duty in the receiving room when the man in the dock came in with a lacerated scalp and a small cut over the eye. I trimmed the hair from the scalp wound, which was on the right side, and also washed his face. I asked him how he came by it, and he replied, quote, The truth of it is I have been with a woman, and she has done me. End quote. The prisoner. Be careful. Witness. I asked him whether it was for much. He replied, quote, only for seven shillings or eight shillings or, and a watch. I shouldn't have minded that, but they knocked me about, end quote. The prisoner was trembling very much, and I asked him why he was trembling so. He said, quote, I am so cold. I have been walking about. Can you give me something to warm me, end quote? I told him I had nothing to give him and persuaded him to go on to his lodgings. He said, quote, unfortunately, I've got none. I have only been on shore one night, and... I have not secured any, end quote. He also told me his ship was lying in the London dock. I saw there was blood on his hands and asked him if they were cut. It was some few seconds before he answered, and before doing so, he put up his hands and looked at them. He said, quote, Yes, my finger is cut. He, or they, had a knife, end quote. I looked at the finger and saw that it was only a slight cut. I then said, quote, all the blood cannot come from that little cut, end quote. He replied, quote, well, it didn't come from that, it came from my head, end quote. I asked him where it happened, and he said, quote, in Ratcliffe Highway near Lehman Street, end quote. I also added that he had been into one or two pieces to get a few halfpence so that he could buy refreshments, but they shucked him out. 
If he could borrow a little, he would be willing to pay triple for it, as he had five pounds to draw. The receiving room nurse then dressed his wound as it was too slight for the doctor to be called. As he seemed so queer, I let him lie on a sofa and he went to sleep. He slept for an hour and a half. Then I woke him and told him he would have to go, as I was soon going off duty. I gave him a penny and he seemed grateful for it and went away. Mr. Mead, do you want to ask the witness any questions? Prisoner, there are two or three little things, but I am not in good trim to cross-examine. I am thoroughly hungry and cold. I have had nothing since tea time last night, and I don't feel fit to take an interest in the proceedings. I have been shifted from one cold cell to another, and my clothes have been taken off me at the will and option of the police and doctors. I have not anything to ask now. I am not fit to do it. There are one or two things wrong in what he says, but I can't ask anything now. I'm really too hungry. Mr. Mead. Now, let us have some evidence about the finding of the body. Superintendent Arnold said, Shortly after three o'clock on the morning of the 13th, I went to Swallow Gardens. I there saw the body of the female with a cut in her throat. She was dead. That is the body which Harris afterwards saw. I now ask for a remand. Mr. Mead. Have you any questions to ask? The prisoner, I should like something to eat. Superintendent Arnold, you shall have something. The prisoner, it's about time. Mr. Mead, you are remanded until tomorrow week. Francis Cole was the final victim associated with Jack the Ripper, and that's where we'll leave this bonus episode. There's countless other theories, books, articles, other podcasts out there that dive deeper into the story of Jack the Ripper. I'll make sure to link to a lot of them if you want to dive even deeper over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks again to Nikki for picking this movie, for becoming a producer of Based on a True Story. I really hope that you enjoyed both this regular episode and this extra bonus episode. Now, if you want to continue getting bonus episodes, you can hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support and sign up to become a producer of the show. Now, in an attempt to be completely upfront and honest, do not expect bonus episodes to be hours and hours long like this one here. Uh, sometimes they're just a few minutes. Sometimes they're longer, you know, half an hour, roughly the length of an average episode. It really varies depending on the amount of information to share. It's my attempt at sharing some of the research that I come across, some of the articles like the ones that we've discovered here on this episode that I come across during my research. But you'll help me keep the lights on while getting even more based on a true story. Oh, yeah. And as a one-time special bonus for signing up to become a producer, you'll get to pick any movie that you want covered like Nikki did for From Hell. And if that weren't enough, you also get early access to episodes, too. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast.com slash support. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. <laughs>